0: All right, for all you unlucky souls that have to uh, restart this year. Jim Van Rie is the best out there. I, you know, I've researched a bunch of different PAs that do this type of a review, and if any of you haven't gone, you know, seen him talk before, he does a great comprehensive review of our Pants and Pannery. Uh, He's a program director at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine PA program in Chicago. He's been in clinical practice for 21 years as a hospitalist with over 12 in internal medicine and eight in Hemonc. Uh, He obtained his PA degree from the University of Iowa and his master's from Rosalind, Franklin University. He's the author of the Physician Assistant Review book by uh, Elsevier and course developer and instruction for the online Kaplan Board Review course. He's a regular speaker, both nationally and locally, and please help welcome Mr. Uh, Van Rie. Thank you. So you guys are the poor souls who got to recertify, huh? I feel your pain. I do too. You go, yeah, but you do the course. Yeah, that's even more pressure. What if I fail? Okay, so. Oops. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about all the things other than DERM. That's the one topic I'm not going to cover. Um, I'm not, I think you can understand why. Oh, and that was a copy of my book, just in case you want to make me rich. <laughs> so here's the areas we're going to go through. We're going to go through test-taking skills, some cardiology, EKG stuff. I know the dreaded EKGs. Okay. Uh, GI, musculoskeletal, endocrine, some renal neurology hematology, ENT, some infectious disease, and a little bit of psych. Now this is, if you've sat through this before, this is entirely different than last year's or the year before, except for the first little bit on test-taking tips. Otherwise, all new topics. So, test. What's it do besides give you angst and anxiety and bloody diarrhea? Oh, I know you're having breakfast, sorry about that. I'm internal medicine, that stuff doesn't bother us, so. What it's trying to do, mainly, is test your knowledge. That's the goal from the NCCPA, is test your knowledge. The other thing the test does that they don't want it to do, but it all tests do, and that's test-taking skills. They don't want it to do that, but it does. The better you are at taking a test, the better you're going to do on this exam. As a skill, like any other clinical skill, the more you practice, the more you do these things, the better you're going to be at it. Um, it, the stuff I'm going to talk about does have some evidence-based scientific foundations to it. We're going to focus on how to prepare and how to do your best during this exam. We'll finish up with uh, some do's and don'ts for test taking. So what to do before, during, and after the board exam. Preparation. You've got to know what's on the board exam. They go, well, I know. I'm supposed to know the material. If you have not gone to the NCCPA website, you need, other than to register for the exam, you need to go. You need to go check out the blueprint, it's nccpa.net, not .org, .net. If you go to .org, you get some site from North Carolina, I forget what it is. Go to their website, at least look at the blueprint for the PANRI. It's the same as it is for the PANTS, for first-time test takers, as it is for recertifiers. Go there and look through the topics, not only by organ system, but look by knowledge and skills. Okay. That breaks it down in, you've got to know about formulating a diagnosis, pharmacotherapeutics, clinical interventions. Go there so you know what to expect, so you can focus your uh, preparation on that. Prepare mentally, stop worrying about what other test takers are doing. You're going to go into a, a testing center, there's going to be a bunch of people around there. There may even be uh, PAs taking it for the first time. Remember they're in awe of you, you've passed once already. They go, wow, you're a real PA, you've got to see. ooh, okay. So, but you're gonna be in that room, you might be next to other people taking it for the recertifying. Don't worry what they're doing. Just focus on your exam. There might be somebody who sits down and gets up in 30 minutes and leaves, you go, oh my God, that person's brilliant. They were probably taking another exam, so don't worry about it. Know your testing site. Nothing caused more anxiety than to show up late. Okay, you're already nervous about the exam. Know where you're going. Go there the day before, a couple days before. Know where you're gonna park, know where it is. And then supplies. Don't rot. Don't bother. You can't bring anything into the exam room with you. They're going to take your phone. They're going to take your uh, watch. If it's got any kind of numerical things on it, they're going to give you a locker to store this all in. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, the exam is scored two ways. It's norm-referenced. All the raw scores are converted to a standard so that they can compare year to year. But more importantly for you, it's criteria-referenced. That means that you know going in, well, you sort of know going in, they know going in what you have to get to pass. The pants, the original certifying exam, the passing score is 350. Students know that going in no matter what. They score 350 or 351 or higher, they pass. 349, they fail. For the PANRI, it's around 360. It does fluctuate from year to year a point or two. Now you go, 360, there's only 240 questions on the exam. That's because they weight the questions, they do some other manipulations with it. 360 is around 60%. No, I can do 60 percent. Good. Then let's all go home. Now, you have to take the exam every six years. This is going to change here soon. Thank goodness. It's going to go to every 10. You go, oh wow, I don't have to test. They're going to add some more stuff to it. So another reason to go to the NCCPA website. You go to a Pearson Testing Center. You get five hours to complete the exam. It's 240 questions around five hours. You get four blocks of 60 and then you get 45 minutes of break. So it's really four hours and 45 minutes you get to complete the exam. If you don't utilize your breaks you cannot add that to your test taking time. You get 60 questions, 60 minutes. When the clock strikes zero they let you answer the question you're working on and then the test closes. Okay, the biggest problem I get from people who fail the exam is that I didn't finish any of the blocks on time. I was always leaving five or six questions unanswered. Those are automatically wrong. So right away, you've got six out of the 60 wrong. You're already 10th of the exam you missed. So that's why the speed is so important here. How many of you are recertifying for like the 15th time? Okay, fourth, okay. Back in the day, you had two blocks, two weeks, twice a year that you could take this exam. Not the case anymore. The only time it's really not available is between Christmas and New Year's. Otherwise, you can take it whenever you want. I strongly encourage you, if you're that angst about this exam, you get to take it in the fifth year, a year early, go ahead and take it a year early. If you take it a year early, you actually have four opportunities to pass the exam. Practice focus component now on the PANRI, 60% of the exam will be general primary care. The other 40% you get to pick, and you can pick either adult medicine, surgery, or primary care. If you've recertified before and you thought, well, that exam was fine, I'm happy with that, the breakup of questions was great, I'm okay, then pick the primary care component. That's the same thing as the old exam. I often get asked by people who are in specialty areas, well, I do a derm or I do GI, should I just take adult medicine? Not necessarily. Remember, that's gonna cover adult medicine in all the categories. So you're going to get a lot of adult medicine cardiology questions, adult medicine GI questions. So as a specialty person, you might be happier with the primary care. You go, well, I don't do any peds. Well, you're going to get peds questions anyway, because 60% of it's generalist. Those are going to have peds questions anyway. Now the scoring, it's really difficult. You get it right, you get a point. You get it wrong, no point. You don't answer it, no point. There's no waiting, there's no, if you picked A, you get a quarter of a point, if you picked B, you get a half a point. It's one point, one answer. That's it. One point for each correct, no penalty for incorrect answers. Tests are then evaluated, questions removed, if needed, and tests rescored. and as I said, your passing score is predetermined. About a year ago, I think it's been about a year now, uh, the NCCPA had a little, shall we say, uh, hiccup. Um, I was teaching my Kaplan review course, and I had a bunch of people who were getting ready to recertify, take it, and we always tell them that if they need more help, I'm glad to help them afterwards, or if they fail, let me know, and I'll try to help them get ready for the next version. I was getting phone calls right and left. I must have got six or seven of them from people who failed the PAN panry. And I'm starting to think, oh my God, my course is a disaster. We found out the PAN, the NCCPA people, had scored them wrong about hundred and fifty people had been told they failed and they hadn't. They had all passed. So that's why they forgot there's a weighting factor they put into certain exams and then do the scores. They forgot to change the weighting factor from what I heard. So uh, they do reevaluate them and look at the questions. Now the testing center, make sure you get there early, at least 30 minutes to get all the paperwork done. There's a computer clock on the screen that you can use because they might not let you keep your watch. They definitely won't let you keep your cell phone. You can turn that camera or that clock off, and I recommend you do that. It'll pop back on when you've got about five minutes left. What I tell people to do is, if you're gonna practice for this exam, find some uh, review questions. My book just happens to have 600 of them. That was subtle, wasn't it? Um, also, the Kaplan course that I teach, they have a bank of questions, which is about 1,200 questions. What I recommend you do is you sit down and you practice taking questions with a clock. So tell yourself, I'm going to do 30 questions, I'm going to set my timer for 30 minutes. You need to develop this internal clock in your head to know what a minute is. So you're not sitting there when you see the EKG and go 20 minutes later, okay, I think I got that one. Okay, that's too much time. As I said, no supplies are allowed. They'll give you a marker board with a dry eraser, or they'll give you scrap paper and a pencil. If they give you five pieces of scrap paper, they will expect five pieces back. You can write down whatever you would like on these whiteboards or scrap paper. I tell people to dump stuff the moment they walk in. While you're going through the tutorial, start dumping down formulas. I can never remember anion gap when I need to, so I'm going to write it down. Great. I've got this little algorithm I had for blood gases. Write it down. You can have that in front of you. You brought, you didn't bring the paper in with you, you wrote it down when you got there. That's not cheating in their eyes, so it's just utilizing the information you have. No personal belongings. They'll give you a locker for all that. I do recommend you bring some um, granola bars or something. That's a long day. Bring something to drink. You can use those during the break. Once you begin a block of questions, you cannot stop the clock. So, the worst case scenario of this I ever had, I had a student who was eight months pregnant. We told her to not take the exam. She said, no, I wanna get it done because I know I won't study after the baby's born. She got up every five minutes to go to the bathroom she didn't pass because she couldn't finish any of the blocks on time. She's very bright. She, recertified, she retook it the, uh, three months later and passed with flying colors, but she got up every few seconds to go to the bathroom. They do not stop your clock and it takes time. You actually have to fingerprint and sign in and out of the room. That takes time. You're talking about three or four minutes every time you want to leave the room, so don't do it. Finish a block of questions, then take your break, and during that break time, that 45 minutes, you can use whatever amount of that you want. Go to the bathroom, go walk outside for a minute, go get a drink, go eat a granola bar, or whatever. Don't do it during the testing thing. Don't forget your two forms of ID. At least one has to have your photograph on it. Uh, they have a list on their website about what's approved. Make sure they have the same names on them. Okay, My social security card says Jim. My driver's license says James. That wasn't allowed. I had to use my Wells Fargo credit card at the time, which I thought, wow, you'll take my credit card, but not either of those, okay. Make sure they match. They will give you on their website what will match. You know, Does Dick and Richard match, those sorts of things. They'll tell you just in case. Here's the exam content, what it's broken down into. If you look at the diseases, disorders, organ system, the top four cardiovascular, pulmonary, GI, and musculoskeletal make up almost 50% of the exam. Where people don't do well, it's because they bomb those four, one or two of those four areas. Like I said, you've got to get around 60% in those four areas to do well. You can do poor in those four, but the other portions of the exam, you have to knock it out of the ballpark. Okay? Think about it. 240 questions, 16% of it's cardiovascular. That's a fair number of questions. And look at you guys. Derm, 5%. Don't feel bad. I was a hematologist. We only have 3%, okay? I got my 10 heme questions right last time. I felt so good about myself. Matter of fact, if you specialize, that's probably an area you're not gonna do as well as you think In, I've had people who've done derm like you guys, and they come back and they say, you only got 50% on derm. And I go, really? And they go, I don't know why. I said, I know why. Because you thought as a dermatologist and not a primary care. You said, well, none of these are right. Because I would do this, this, and this, because you have the latest information at your fingertips. Your exam was written about 18 months ago and put together. So it won't have the latest cutting-edge stuff necessarily on it. Then don't forget about tasks and objectives. Um, Clinical therapeutics, pharmacology, and formulating the most likely diagnosis are the two biggest areas. Make up almost 40% of the exam. So this is do you know what drugs to use and do you know what diagnosis they have. They still do cover basic science, and that's in applying scientific concepts. One of the things they'll do here, though, is they'll apply it to clinical scenarios. It won't be a picture of a femur and say, identify this bone. Okay? It won't be that sort of thing, so you don't have to worry about going back that far. So, general strategies when you get there. Dump information, calculations, formulas, flow charts. Normal lab values you don't need to remember on a drop down menu, there's a little button in the corner of the screen, you click normal ranges drop down. If it's not on that list, it'll be in the question, because they don't put every lab on that drop down menu, but they do do most of them. Now the more you know, the quicker you can do the question. You don't want to have to be going back and forth ten times for every question. So if you know what the CBC normal values are and the electrolytes and blood gases and stuff, it'll make your job a lot easier. But you don't have to. They'll be there for you. Develop a plan. Budget your time. If you're starting to take more than two minutes per question, it's time to move on. Guess. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Plan to use the exi- entire exam time. I tell this, this is very important to people who are certifying for the first time. They always like to say, oh, well, you know, it's a five hour exam, but I'll be done in two hours. I was always a really fast test taker. I'll meet you guys for golf at noon and they show up at four in the afternoon and their buddies go, where were you? Oh my God, that was hard. Okay, plan on being there the whole time. This is not the time to say, tell your office staff, you know what, I start at eight, start booking me at 10, I'll be back. No, you won't, okay, trust me. Make educated guesses, you can go back later, just the first time through the exam, don't leave anything blank. If you look at a question, it's question number three, you look at it and you go, I don't have a clue what the answer is, pick B. I don't care, pick C. Then you can mark it for review later, and then you can go back. But at least there's an answer. If you get to the very last question, number 60, and the clock says your time is up, you go, at least I got them all done. At least I got them all done at least once, there's an answer. If you leave it blank to review later, you may not get a chance. Don't leave anything blank the first time through. Well, I guessed. Well, if you guess, you get a one in five chance of getting it right. If you leave it blank, what's your chance? Zero! Okay? There's always five options. A, B, C, D, and E. Guess if you have to, don't leave it blank. The other thing that I get asked a lot is about drug names. Generic for common names, they're not going to, you know, penicillin, erythromycin, those they're going to just give you the names. Generic and trade for others, they will never just use a trade name because trade names for certain drugs can vary, what's most common in certain parts of the country or from certain companies, so they get away from that. So they'll give you generic for sure, and if they do give you the trade, they'll give you the generic as well. Now, this is a multiple choice exam. They're all A type questions, multiple choice with five options actually. Negative questions are almost unheard of. All the following are true except they won't do those. None of those types of questions on the exam. No K questions. For those of you who have been out there a long time, remember in school or on the boards you had K questions, A is true, B and C are true, D is true, none of the above are true, they're only true if today is Y, N and Y, those sorts of things, they don't have those anymore. It's just straightforward. Most of them have a clinical scenario. That's why it's important to work on your timing. You have a minute to do this question. These aren't, a lot of them are not basic recall. The capital of the United States is, you either know it or you don't. That's not the type of questions on this exam anymore. Try to answer a question before looking at the choices. You read the scenario, you read the question, don't look at the five options yet, in your head go, oh, the answer is congestive heart failure. Then see if it's there. That gives you a lot more strength, uh, feeling strong about that answer. Pick the best answer. If it appears to be two right answers, then select the most specific. You're gonna walk out of this exam, if this is the first, anybody recertifying for the first time? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Um, You're going to walk out of there going, you know, on a lot of these questions, I narrowed it down to one or two. That's what they want you to do. When they look at the distribution of this exam, the way the questions break out, they want to see somebody pick every one of the options, at least a small number. They want most of the people to pick the right answer, and then they want there to be one other one that's really close. You know, like one is 60%, then a 30 but they'd like to see 5% or so in all the other options. That tells them they made really good distractor choices. Okay, so a lot of times you walk out of there going, oh man, I usually had it narrowed down to one or two. When in doubt, pick the one that's most specific. Eliminate unlikely answers. That doesn't help so much on this exam. Um, I used to do a uh, review thing like this for undergrad students for test prepping, and um, I can help people get really good grades and pass exams, may not get A's, but you'll pass exams on content you've never taken before because it's all about being able to answer the questions on the exam. And most professors are terrible exam writers. Okay, so there are tricks you can use. It doesn't work on this exam, though. Look for clue words and numbers. That helps a little bit here. uh, Not too often. Don't read into the questions. Don't assume anything. Okay, I picked lung cancer because, you know, if they were a smoker. Did it say they were a smoker? No. Then why did you assume that? Don't read into the questions. Okay, well it could have been a Tylenol overdose. Did it say they were on Tylenol? Well no, then why did you pick Tylenol overdose? Don't read into the questions. When in doubt, guess and don't change your answers unless. And you go, well that's really helpful. The caveat to that is if something further along on the exam pops up and you go, oh my gosh, that's right. I gotta go back. You can only go back within that block of questions. You can't go back to the first block or second block if you're already on the last block. But if you're going through the exam and all of a sudden it triggers, go ahead and, because most people in that case will change it they have, from changing it to a wrong to right answer 75% of the time. Now if you change it a third time, you go back down to less than 25% chance of getting it right. So if you're gonna change something, change it once. Usually your first gut feeling your instinct is correct. So, I tell people to go through the exam in three phases. One, go through the exam and answer those items that you're familiar with. But don't leave anything blank. Now, I had somebody afterwards come up to me after a thing like this that I do for another specialty group, and they went, well, what if I wasn't familiar or felt good about any of them? Well, I can't help you there, okay? If this is the first time you recognize the words otitis media, uh, probably should have delayed taking the exam. But answer those you're confident with. It'll save some time, build up confidence. But as I said, don't leave anything blank. Then go back through and look at your marked or skipped questions. Then you've got a little time. At least you know you've got an answer for everything. So if you run out of time, there's something there. Eliminate any incorrect answers. Think through it some more. Decide. And then if, when in doubt, just guess. People always say, well, which one do you pick? I don't know. The thing you have to remember is that two of you can be taking the exam together. You know, you're a person in your office, two of your PA's together, you're in the office together, you're going to recertify together, you're going to sit next to each other at, their, at the uh, at testing center together, it's going to be so great, you'll take your breaks together, everything will be wonderful, you'll hold hands, sing kumbaya. You won't have the same questions. And if you do happen to get the same question, The distractors are all gonna be mixed. They not only mix the questions, but they mix the options. So that's why I can't tell you pick B, pick C, pick D every time, because they mix them all up. Now, you've gotta know and recognize the medical information. I mean, that's kind of obvious, seems pretty basic. The best way to pass the exam is to know the material. However, there's gonna be times you need to guess between two or more choices, don't guess randomly. Every option you can eliminate increases your chances of getting it right use the appropriate test taking skills and avoid situations leading to mistakes or impeding performance like being eight months pregnant or breaking up with your significant other right before recertifying not a good option Okay, getting fired right before you get uh, recertified probably, you probably want to delay taking the exam okay i want to go quickly through some do's and don'ts here uh, and then we'll get to the content of the uh... the medicine part get adequate sleep and rest before the exam I, For most of us who've been doing this for a while, that's not so much an issue. This is more of an issue with first-time test takers. Do practice what you're doing during the exam. That's answering multiple choice questions on a computer. Lots of review books out there. Lots of review options out there. They're all about the same, okay? There's only so many ways you can write certain questions. Um, If anybody out there with their product says, well, we have, I mean, I'm able to tell a little bit how good my course and stuff does pass rate. Of all the people over my career that I've done that I've been able to find their test scores, I've got a 97% pass rate. Now, I can't check on all of them because I just can't find all of them. But I can't tell you how my correlates, how you do on any of my exams in my book to the pants exam or to the re because I don't have that kind of data. So anybody who tells you that if you get this on their exam, this correlates to this on the pants, they're blowing smoke. Unless they've gotten the NCCPA to open up their coffers and give them all the exam results, they can't do it. Unless they're getting everybody who's taking their course or using their book to give them their results, which I find that very hard to believe. So watch it there, it's not always the case. But do practice what you're gonna be doing. It's one thing to read the review book, that's great, but you gotta practice the questions. Do direct your studying to primary care ears which you're least familiar. Don't spend time reviewing dermatology, okay? Yeah, but I'm so good at it. Yeah, I know. That's why you don't waste your time reviewing it. Dress comfortably in layers. Prepare for temperature extremes, hot or cold. They're not gonna let you bring your big jacket in with you. You have to put that in a locker if you're doing this in the winter. Do arrive alert, calm, well-rested. Bring beverages, food for lunch, between-question block snacks. Reread the instructions provided by the testing agency. Go through the tutorial. You can do the same tutorial, almost the same tutorial, online, through NCCPA. There's a link that actually takes you to the Pearson website and you can go through what the screen's going to look like. There's a couple of FACO questions on there. What the computer drop-down screen looks like, what the clock looks like. Do it. You have to download this little program to your computer and then you just run it. It's really short. But that's the tutorial they're going to take you through. And then do review the information about the content, instructions, and format at their website as I mentioned earlier. Remember to bring your admissions material, if there are any, if they sent you a form, bring your IDs, look at your exam- uh, computer station when you get there, make sure there's no glares, there's no air conditioning vent blowing on you. They're there to help you, the proctor is, and if they can move you, they will. You don't want the seat right by the door where everybody's banging the door on your chair. Okay? You cannot bring your iPad or iPod in with you. Well, I listen to music while I take exams. Well, good for you, you're not this time. I mean do you honestly think, I've had students ask, well I always listen to music, they're not going to let you bring your iPad in there, what do they, how do they know you don't have like Harrison's on there, okay? So they give you disposable earplugs that you can put in if noise is an issue. Pace yourself, um, allow some extra minutes at the end, I tell people a minute per question really if you want to do really well. Try to work yourself into about 50 seconds per question. That way you've got some time at the end. Um, Avoid situation, put you in unfavorable mindset. We've talked about that. Relate questions to your own practice and experiences. Remember, the people who wrote this exam are people just like you. They're writing the questions. And then practice stress management techniques. Uh, Don't let the anxiety... Oh, one other thing. This is not the time to try beta blocker the first time for test anxiety. Okay. Nothing's worse than getting up after the first block to go to the bathroom and then going down again because you became hypotensive, okay? This is not the time to do that. Um, Do change your answer if you've got a good reason to do so. We talked about that. Use the process of elimination as you would with a patient's differential diagnosis. Read the question stem and combine it with each foil to form a sentence. This may help you eliminate some uh, answers. A lot of times, most people will go look for the words like most, more, usually, often, less, seldom, or fewer, and that sometimes will lead you to the correct answer. They avoid these words on the exam, just like they avoid a lot of other words in the exam. Because in medicine, is anything 100%? No. So they really try to avoid those words. Do eliminate choices containing completely unfamiliar words as distractors. If you've never heard of the word, why in blue blazes would you pick it? I get this all the time with my students even now. Why did you pick D? Do you know what that means? No. Then why did you pick it? Because I thought you were trying to trick me. We're not trying to trick you. They're not trying to trick you. Eliminate that as an option then. Mark your questions you're not sure of, return to those, you can finish the question block. And then we're gonna talk, I'm gonna do a little quick EKG review. EKG and chest X-rays, answer them backwards, okay? How long does it take you to read a 12-lead EKG? Hour, hour and a half? I'm kidding. But if it takes you more than a minute, you've already burned up time. Work those backwards. One of the five options they gave you is the correct answer, right? Read those five options. If it says fib, go, okay, I've gotta look for irregular R to R intervals and no P wave activity. If it says a flutter, I gotta look for that sawtooth pattern. If it says uh, first gravy block, I gotta look for a prolonged uh, PR interval. And then go look back in the EKG and look for those things. Don't sit there and go, okay, lead one, the P wave, lead two, that means the X. Don't be doing that. You ain't got time for that. Same thing with chest X-ray. If it says number one, right lower lobe pneumonia, look in the right lower lobe. There's nothing there, that one's wrong. Okay, work them backwards. Too many people read the question, they look at the X-ray, and they try to sit there and interpret it. It's one of those five choices. I call it working backwards. It'll save you a tremendous amount of time. Don't cram at the last minute. It's not gonna help. I tell people it takes at least 30 days to get ready for this exam. The exam covers mostly primary care breadth rather than depth. we are trying to cover a lot of categories. Don't eat a large meal within two hours of beginning the exam that didn't used to be a problem because nobody ate at 6 o'clock in the morning for their 8 o'clock exam. Now some of these testing centers, like ours in Chicago, are staying open until 9, 10 at night to get all the test takers in. So they're starting another block of exams in the afternoon. So don't be going out and having a big old steak dinner because where's all the blood going to go? To your gut. And if it doesn't go there and goes to your brain, then what's going to happen to your gut? It's called abdominal cramping, and you don't want that in the exam either. Don't leave anything blank, I can't stress that enough. Don't discuss the exam during administration, during the breaks, or after the exam. If you're taking it there with somebody who's taking the pants for the first time and they find out you're already a certified PA, they're gonna be in awe and wanna talk to you, and it's gonna feel really good. Ooh, wow, they're so impressed. Focus on the exam, okay? Don't become irate over seemingly absurd questions and oh, there will be seemingly absurd questions, I guarantee it. Who would ever, this is supposed to be primary care. Why do I care what heart valve they're supposed to put in a kid who's 12 months old with aortic stenosis, only brought about, who cares, right? Just let it go. It's, they still could be field testing some questions. They've done away with a lot of that, but they still could be doing that. Don't guess randomly. We've talked about that already. And then don't think of anything except the exam in front of you oh man what about that patient yesterday wonder how that turned out let it go for now I know it's difficult uh, but try to let it go okay any questions about any of that stuff before we get into the topics now if you thought that was flat fast now we're gonna fly So we're gonna talk about just a couple of major topics in each one of these areas. So for like cardiology, I've got uh, hypertension, and I think we're gonna do some EKG review, and we're gonna talk about uh, pericarditis, I think is on there. And like hematology, I'm gonna go through the leukemias before I did the anemia, so all new topics. So hypertension, think there's gonna be some hypertension questions on the exam? Oh yeah, and it's gonna bug you to no end because you're gonna go, how many hypertensive meds are there? There's like seven million of them. Okay, a little hyperbole there. There's a bunch, how do I know which one to pick? That's what I'm gonna help you with. As you can see, the incidence is about 25% of patients with hypertension, end organ damage is common. Hypertension questions are very commonly examined, not just from the standpoint of making the diagnosis and treating, but having that be a condition they already have. 55 year old or 65 year old with hypertension presents with, so you've gotta know about the risk factors. End organ damage is common. Cardiac, they can get left ventricular hypertrophy, they can develop angina heart failure, aortic aneurysms, stroke, TIAs, nephropathies, affecting the kidneys, retinopathy. You know, 65 year old with long standing hypertension presents with change in vision and then they give you the retina. And you've gotta go, oh, that's hypertensive retinopathy. So you're gonna see a lot of hypertension in the exam. It may not be that's what the focus of the question is, but it'll be linked. Here's the JNC-7 guidelines. Stage two, stage one, prehypertension, normal. The thing I need to point out is that let's say their systolic blood pressure is 145 and their diastolic is 105. If they ask you what stage they're in, they're in stage two. You always take the highest of the two. Okay? If both numbers are in stage one, well, then they're stage one. But you always go higher. So if somebody was 139 over 105, they would be a stage two. You always go the higher and you're going to have to know because this is going to help you with your treatment options. Now some other things that may come up uh, part of the history it's really not it's hard for them to ask questions related to this but the duration of their hypertension their family histories review systems the one I want to mention a little bit here is basic labs. These are really just the basic things you'll do for new onset hypertensives. Look at their UA, calculate somehow way or shape or form whether it's creatinine or 24 hour urine glomerular filtration rate look at their glucose, their cholesterol level, potassium, and maybe a baseline EKG. All the other stuff like catecholamines and all that sort of stuff we'll talk about those with secondary causes of hypertension in a minute but for just your run-of-the-mill regular essential these are your baseline labs. I don't know why it does this but it does. This is from the JNC7 the treatment uh, algorithm. Now lifestyle modifications is always first even the JNC 7 says you need to try lifestyle modifications diet exercise those sorts of things the JNC 7 does not say how long you should try those before you start medication the rest of the literature says about 6 to 12 months so a lot of times what you'll get is questions you know 40 year old person hypertensive has tried lifestyle modifications blood pressures are still reading this what do you do next if they don't tell you they've been on lifestyle modifications and that's an option, that's your first choice unless they're hypertensive urgency or emergency. Okay? So if it says, you know, 45 year old male presents with a blood pressure systolic 140, diastolic 95, what would you do first? If lifestyle modifications is an option, pick it. It's not always about the drugs. Okay? That would be a clinical intervention question where the treatment is something other than a medication. And remember, a certain portion of the exam is related to that. So if they're stage one, you've got thiazide diuretics are by far the most common, and it's recommended by the JNC-7. Is it really the right choice? Probably not, Um, but I don't want to get into all the other stuff in the literature about thiazide diuretics. We're just going to go by what the JNC7 says, and that first option, as long as there's no contraindication, is thiazides. You can also consider ACE inhibitors. Whoa, I thought that was the end of the thing here. Um, ARBs, uh, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers are a combination. Type stage 2, you might need to use two or more drugs. Um, This with compelling indications, basically it's if they're starting to have some end organ issues already and then optimizing. The question is gonna be on the exam that's gonna be difficult is, look at all these different options. How do I know which one to pick? Well, here's one thing about lifestyle modifications. It should be part of every hypertensive regime which we talked about. May last, I already mentioned, six to 12 months. The modifications, dietary sodium reduction, that only drops your blood pressure about two to four milligrams. Stop smoking, 10 to 15. Uh, moderate alcohol intake exercise will get it about 10 milligrams of mercury down as well. So those are your lifestyle modification things you want to get them to do in the question. Caffeine consumption does not need to be eliminated. It does when you're taking their blood pressure because it does have an acute uh, effect on blood pressure causing your blood pressure to go up, but long-term it doesn't. So here's that same flow chart just in a table format in case you'd rather have it in a table. Now how do I know which ones to pick? Here's your compelling indications. Let's say they tell you it's hypertensive and they got heart failure. Beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, I bolded there, are the best choices. Okay, All these slides should be in your handouts, I hope, on your little disc. Post-MI beta blocker. If you've got a post-MI patient and you don't have them on a beta blocker, you better have a darn good reason why, because they've been shown time and time again to decrease mortality and morbidity. The only contraindication to beta blockers in those people is either second or third degree heart blocks. If they're diabetic, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, because of the renal protective effects they have for both the diabetes and the hypertension. And there's the renal disease, the ACE and the ARBs. Um, So that's how they're going to help you narrow down which drug to pick. The other way they're going to do it is by contraindications. New onset hypertensive who's got a history of gout, you don't want to give them thiazides because you could cause a gout flare. Okay? New hypertensive, who's got a problem with elevated potassium levels, you don't want to give them potassium sparing diuretic. So that's the way they're gonna give you to narrow down which question. Because if they just went by JNC7 guidelines and just said how do you treat this hypertensive, it'd be very hard for them to make some of the options be wrong answers. So this is how they do it, looking at compelling indications and contraindications. Now, secondary hypertension. There's always a question on this on there somewhere. Classically, it's pheochromocytoma, okay? I've been doing internal medicine for over 20 years. I've seen two cases of pheochromocytoma in my entire career. One, I just happened to see because one of my colleagues was rounding on the patient. They said, oh, I got a case of pheochromocytoma, oh, cool. Only one have I ever diagnosed in 20 some years and a lot of inpatient internal medicine. So it's not very common, but it makes for great board questions, okay? So, the causes here, obstructive sleep apnea, drug-induced or related causes, chronic kidney disease, primary aldosteronism, renal vascular disease. Renal vascular disease is the number one cause of secondary hypertension. Cushing's, pheochromocytoma, coarctation of the aorta, or parathyroid or thyroid disease. In treatment, this is really simple. You don't need to worry about the antihypertensives. Treat the underlying cause. Now, how are they gonna do this in a question? Really subtly, okay? If they're worried about renal vascular disease, and they want you to think about that, they're gonna tell you on exam you hear a renal artery brewy. or they're gonna tell you that the creatinine has been going up. That's to get you to think about renal vascular, okay? For they aorta, unequal pulses, rib notching, caudication, primary aldosteronism, otherwise known as Kahn syndrome. Well, primary hyperaldosteronism um, is Kahn syndrome. Hypokalemia, Cushing syndrome, the truncal obesity, the buffalo hump, uh, the thinning of the skin, all those things you would see with somebody who had too much cortisol on board. Pheochromocytoma, not only hypertensive, but the classic tachycardia, headache, and diaphoresis. And then sleep apnea, they usually tell you the person's obese and that the family members complain they snore. And then what do you do to evaluate them? For renal vascular, ultrasound the kidneys, maybe doing uh, magnetic resonance angiography, MRI or CT for the coortation, renin aldosterone levels. Um, They probably won't have too many questions where they ask you about, uh, they give you elevated aldosterone levels and then give you the name primary hyperaldosteronism because that kind of gives it away. They tend to not put in the answer what's abnormal in the question. So if they show you a hyper, you know, elevated aldosterone level and one of the options is hyperaldosteronism, that kind of gives it away. So what they like to do in that case is use Kahn syndrome as the distractor. Pheochromocytoma, you'd have to check metanephrines and normetanephrines in the plasma. And then sleep apnea, you'd do a sleep study. So that's how they're going to get you to think about secondary hypertension. Now when do you suspect this? Um, Onset, hypertension under the age of 30, over 50, uh, worsening of previously controlled hypertension, failure to respond to therapy. The person who's been on three drugs in the question and still hypertensive, gotta think about secondary causes. Hypokalemia, as long as they're not on a diuretic, anybody who's got hypertension, new-onset hypertension, and they're hypokalemic, they are primary aldosteronism, primary hyperaldosteronism until proven otherwise. Labile hypertension, headache, palpitations, diaphoresis, feochromocytoma. And if they give you a scenario where somebody is hypertensive, and they said they put them on an ACE inhibitor and they developed renal failure, because usually ACE inhibitors are renal protective, you've got a renal vascular issue causing their hypertension, because ACE inhibitors in renal vascular disease will actually make them worse. Hypertensive emergencies, this is severe hypertension with severe rapidly worsening symptoms of end organ damage. The key for these is there has to be some end organ damage. You can have blood pressure 210 over 150, and if there's no end organ damage, you still don't have a hypertensive emergency. I don't think they'd go that extreme, because by the time your diastolic gets to 150, you're gonna have some end organ issues, I would think. But neurologically, it might be signs of encephalopathy, headache, confusion, seizures, chest pain, MI, palpitations, hematuria, proteinuria, papilledema, hemorrhage, blurry vision. Those are all end organ issues. CT of their head. EKG, electrolytes, renal function. The treatment is different. This is not I'm gonna give you a thiazide. This is I'm going to admit you to critical care and put you on IV nitroprusside. What's the big complicate or the bizarre complication from IV sodium nitroprusside? Cyanide toxicity. What's the treatment for cyanide toxicity? Sodium thiosulfate. That's the bizarre type of stuff they'll put on the exam. Okay? now the breakfast is coming back up isn't it Yeah. acute pericarditis moving on here this is inflammation of the pericardial lining of the heart uh, characterized by chest pain pericardial friction rub you better hear a pericardial friction rub well you won't hear it no sound files yet on the exam thank goodness they haven't gotten that complicated yet but if they mention in the question a pericardial friction rub just go right for pericarditis you don't even need to think about anything else but don't fall for the trick one and that's hepatic Friction rub hepatic is what that's liver not heart okay I've seen people fall for that one pericardial friction rub and then EKG abnormalities it can be idiopathic viral is probably one of the more common malignancy Uh, lung breast and lymphomas are very common cause here metabolic infectious Um, drug-induced procainamide and hydralazine drug-induced pericarditis also those are the ones that are linked to drug-induced lupus Idiopathic and then post myocardial infarct. Now, chest pain is the most common. Retrosternal, radiates to the left side, the neck, the back, trapezius, scapula. Uh, coughing or deep breathing will increase the pain. Leaning forward will give you relief. The first line, though, retrosternal, radiates to the left. What else? Does that sound like? Am I? Okay. So look for those little subtle things. Leaning forward gives them relief. That gives them relief because it takes the pericardial sac away from resting on the back of the chest and causing that irritation. They may be short of breath, dyspnea on exertion, a fever, cough, weight loss, the friction rub. This is what you're looking for. This is pathognomonic for acute pericarditis. Labs, CBC, electrolytes, buencratin, these are all trying to evaluate for these other unusual causes. Now, EKG, this can be somewhat helpful. Okay, and you're going, ooh, that's what an EKG looks like. It's the same way I feel about when I look at derm lesions. What's the, new, what's the old, if it's wa- dry, keep it wet, if it's wet, keep it dry? Isn't that one of them? And what's the other one? Um, if you don't know what it is, don't touch it, and if you know what it is, there's no reason to touch it? That's another one, I think. So, um, in this case, a lot of EKGs can be very nonspecific. You can see a flutter, a-fib, low voltage, The classic thing though is this top, diffuse ST segment elevation with upright T waves. Okay, here's our ST segment, here's lead V4. ST segment, this is all elevated. Okay, it's away from, here's the baseline, that's all elevated. It's elevated here, it's elevated here, it's elevated here, it's elevated here. Now here it's not elevated, but I've got a lot of positive deflection here in V1. If you remember where V1 is, V1's over on this side. Most of your impulses of the heart go this way. So anything impulse, any electrical current normal on V1 should always be below baseline or negative. Because it's always going away. Most of your current for your heart is going in that direction, away from V1. So it should almost be all negative. And it's very common to have inverted T waves in lead V1 because everything's going the opposite direction. Look at this one, though. This one has positive T waves, and it actually does have a little ST elevation. This one has some ST elevation. This one has some ST elevation. So either this person has just infarcted their entire heart or they have pericarditis. Unless they tell you the person is unresponsive, dead on the ground, well then you wouldn't see this at all. It'd be another one I'm going to show you in a minute. That's pericarditis. Nobody infarcts their entire heart in a question and is still standing upright talking to you about their chest pain. Okay? So one of the common distractors for these is they like to, because most of the people will pick these up in these leads, They like to say about a lateral um, inferior wall MI. Because you look at this pattern, you go, yeah, I see that. Because they don't look at the rest of the EKG to make sure it's not pericarditis. Treatment, ansads and aspirin for the pain. Steroids, if they don't respond in 48 hours. Most of this is self-limiting and they'll resolve on their own. Cardiac tamponade, this is where they accumulate fluid around the heart. The pericardial sac inability to fill the the heart's a pump and if they that got that constriction around it from the pericardial sac, the tamponade, it won't be able to pump, so it decreases stroke volume and cardiac output. You're going, oh, cardiac output, stroke volume, oh my gosh. Leads to hypotension, dyspnea on exertion, orthopnea, hypotension, JVD, jugular venous distension, okay, only look for that on the right side, not the left side, okay, you can't see anything on the left side, that doesn't have any, Focus on the heart, right JVD, looking at the right atrium. Muffled heart sounds because of all the fluid around the heart, and then pulsus paradoxus. Now, gosh, I can never remember what pulsus paradoxus is, so I put it on a slide for you. This is an exaggerated response from the normal physiologic drop in blood pressure with inspiration. Up to a 10 millimeter mercury drop in systolic occurs normally with respiration. With tamponade, it's greater than 10 millimeters. Now, this brings up a little point here that I want to mention used to be on the exam, they, and they still could do this. I'm not saying they don't anymore. But they used to say often, Pulse's Paradox is positive. And you didn't even need to, you just knew, oh, pulsus Paradox is positive, cardiac tamponade. Okay? They don't do that much anymore. Now they're going to describe it. They're going to say, on blood pressure, there's a 15-millimeter drop in systolic with inspiration. You've got to go, what does that mean? They're trying to get you to go, do you know what Pulse's Paradoxes is or did you just memorize the key buzzword? Because in clinical practice, how are you going to know this is happening? Because you're going to have taken the blood pressure. They want to make sure you can get the data, interpret the data, and then apply it, not just remember the buzzwords. Okay. It changed a lot of what they did, especially in DERM. There was those classic, you know, I can't even think of any of them now. Uh, What's one of the... um, Honey-crusted lesions, okay? They've gotten away from that. Now they're describing everything, okay? And it's the same thing with pulses paradoxes. Echo is your test of choice. Anytime you're looking, I mean, from a cardiac standpoint, if you're worried about electrical activity of the heart, you do an EKG. If you're looking for structure, valves, things like that, you do an echo. And here we're looking for fluid around the heart treatment, drain the fluid, uh, catheter or echo guided, treat symptoms as with for pericarditis, and you can put in a window if they need to be. Um, when I used to train, before I went into education full time, I was a preceptor for PA students working in internal medicine, and I had a student once, um, actually from, I hope he's not in Durham now, uh, Western Michigan University. No, it's not, some of you that I know. But we were seeing this little old lady in the ER, and she was in heart failure, and I went in and talked to her for a few minutes, and said, I'm going to have the student come in and talk to you, and she said, oh, that's okay, that'd be fine. So I'm sitting out at the nurse's station, and the student goes in, and all of a sudden the student leaves. And the nurse who was at the station with me says, oh, your student just left. I said, oh, I'll probably have to go to the bathroom or something. A few minutes later, she says, your student just came back, and he's carrying a large needle. (laughs) That got me excited. So I got up and went into the room, and he had a huge 50cc syringe with a huge needle on the end of it. I said, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I can't hear her heart sounds very well. They sound muffled. So I think she has cardiac tamponade. So I'm going to stick this needle in her chest and drain the fluid off. I said, no, you're not. One, we don't do that in the ER. And two, students don't do that in the ER. Um, Had I not been there, I'm afraid he would have stuck this needle in her chest and drawn the fluid off. And so I listened to her and I said, I hear her heart sounds fine. Um, He had his stethoscope in his ears backwards. Okay so you have got to be a little cautious so cardiac tamponade is not that common okay but the treatment is to drain off the fluid pericardial effusion prolonged or severe inflammation leading to fluid accumulation around the heart if there's small effusions there's no symptom large ones you'll have signs of uh, tamponade that's what's going to be separating out do you have a pericardial effusion or cardiac tamponade tamponade is shutting down the heart as a pump and giving you all those severe signs and symptoms now, one of the things you may see is an enlarged heart. I think we could all agree the way you can do this is measure the distance from here to here and see if it fills more, of half, more than half of the chest cavity. I think even just looking at this, you'd say, wow, this heart is huge. And it's not huge because the heart is huge, it's huge because the pericardial uh, sac is filled with fluid. And that's why it's uh, such a large looking heart. And treatment here again would be drain the fluid off. So one of the things that comes up in the exam is do you have a cardiac tamponade, constrictive pericarditis, or restrictive cardiomyopathy? Now, we did not talk about cardiomyopathies. There's three types. There's hypertrophic, dilated, and restrictive, okay? Dilated, classically, alcohol. They get a really thin left ventricular wall. It's a poor pump. They get cardiomyopathy. Hypertroph- and they have a very uh, poor ejection fraction. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that's the one with the young athletes suddenly dropping over dead, as opposed to dropping over dead any other way. These are the ones who have a huge left ventricle, it's a poor pump, but their ejection fraction is high. Their EFs are like 60-70%. problem is it's such a small volume in their left ventricle that even though they're pushing out most of it, it's still not enough. And then there's restrictive. And restrictive is usually an underlying history of things like lupus, sarcoidosis, um, anything that causes granulomatous-like lesions. And that's where it affects the pericardial sac, causing a restrictive cardiomyopathy. So you can have these three things that kind of look the same mechanism. The difference is cardiac tamponade has positive pulses paradoxus, the other two do not. Pericardial effusion, positive positive in tamponade, negative and constrictive pericarditis, and negative and restrictive cardiomyopathy. So there are some things that can help you here. The other little caveat I want to mention, and it's not 100% true all the time, but for the exam, if it helps you eliminate an option, that's great. If they talk about an S3 on exam, think failure, heart failure. It's not 100%, I know, but for the exam, it may be just enough to help you. S3 heart failure, S4 MI. Okay, That may be just enough to eliminate one of the options or push you one way or the other. Okay, now the dreaded EKGs, all those squiggly lines. This is normal, normal sinus rhythm. You get a P-wave, QRS, T-wave, P-wave, QRS, T-wave, P-wave, QRS, T-wave, P-wave, QRS, T-wave, everything's going along great. The rate's 60 to 100. Now, you guys remember how to calculate rate? I use a really quick, cheap method here. You could measure out a whole bunch of blocks if you wanted to. I like to find one that falls on a block right here. Okay? Right on that big block of, you know, here's the little tiny blocks, one, two, three, four, five of them. So I'm talking about these bigger blocks right here. Falls right on the line. If the next P wave or next uh, R wave fell right here, that would be a heart rate of 300 If it was right here, 150. If it was right here, 100 If it was right here, 75, 60, 50, 45. So 300 150, 100 75, that means this is halfway in between. It's probably got a heart rate of around 80, 82. I know it's 82, I measured it earlier. But that's how you can do the rates really quick. Usually they give you that in the question, but not always, okay? But usually they will. So if it's normal, there's a P wave before every Q, a T after every QRS complex. The PR interval, the beginning of the P wave to the beginning of the R wave, should be 0.12 to 0.25, 0.20 seconds. Each one of these little tiny boxes is 0.04 seconds. Now I'm really dredging up Starf, aren't I. Starting to have these shaking spells right now. Okay. So this would be three little boxes to five little boxes. That's the way I tell people to memorize. Don't memorize the numbers for normal ranges. Go, QPR interval should be three boxes to five boxes little boxes do it that way because that's what you're going to be able to count really quick on the exam and then the QRS complex which is right from here to here should be less than three boxes so this is normal don't be surprised if they give you a normal EKG okay they're giving it to you because it eliminates something else okay so don't assume every EKG they give you is an abnormality Okay, sinus arrhythmia. All components of normal sinus rhythm are there, except it's irregular. So P wave, QRS, T wave, P wave, QRS, T wave, P wave, QRS, T wave. The problem is these R to R intervals are different. Here it's one, two, three, four, five big boxes. One, two, three, four big boxes. Uh, Probably about three boxes. I mean, it's different. This is all coinciding with respirations. As the person is breathing in and out, they're changing their intrathoracic pressure and that's changing the heart rate. Now, can they ask you this question on the exam? They can, but they have to tell you that it's varying with respirations, which gives it away, so odds are they won't. But this can be normal. Sinus bradycardia, everything's the same as normal sinus rhythm, but the rate's less than 60. There's really only two rates you need to remember. Well, three. Less than 60, greater than 100, and greater than 150. If you can calculate those three, you can figure out most of the EKGs in the exam. So, whoops, sorry. So here we go. Um, This one's on the line, pretty close. So this would be 300 to this box, 150, 100, 75, 60, 50, but we definitely know it's below 60 because that would be this box so it's about 54 so that's sinus brady i've got a p wave QRS, T wave for each one the rates less than 60 i've got sinus bradycardia this patient could be a person on a beta block remember beta blockers shove your heart rate way down very common to be under 60. sinus tac everything's normal except the rates 100 or higher So let's find one that's on a line again. I know there is one. This one's pretty close right there. We'll use that one. So 300, 150, this would be 100. So it's definitely between 100 and 150. That's all I need to know. I don't have to sit here and go, okay, that's 146. I don't care. I know it's greater than 100. That tells me it's sinus tachycardia. I don't need to know. They're not gonna ask you a question. Here's an EKG, calculate the rate. They're gonna make you calculate the rate to determine what the answer is. So that way they can kind of test a couple of things at once. So everything's the same, P wave, QRS, T wave, P wave, QRS, T wave, P wave, everything's normal, except the interval, the rate's greater than 100. Premature ventricular contraction or a PVC, an early ventricular contraction, you'll have normal sinus rhythm, P wave, QRS, T wave, P wave, QRS, T wave going on, P wave, QRS, T wave, what the heck happened? you're gonna get this wide, bizarre QRS appearing in the pattern because what happened is something stimulated the ventricle to contract before the P wave initiated it. Now the P wave still occurred and it's in there. Now, a lot of people have trouble finding buried P waves. It's actually quite simple and on the exam it's really easy. That scrap paper they gave you, use it. What you do, is you take that piece of paper and you put it up here. Now I think we would all agree this is a P wave, wouldn't we? And we'd all agree, I'm not even looking at you, so just, just nod, okay. So we'd all agree this is a P-wave, or this is a P-wave, sorry, and this is a P-wave. Take your piece of paper, line it up, make a little mark right here on your paper, a little mark right here on your paper, and then look halfway in between. If you measure this out, halfway in between is right here. There's your P-wave. Remember, if everything is normal, the P-waves are going at a regular cycle, they're going to fire all the time they're supposed to fire. So they happen at regular intervals. So if you can find two that you know, if you didn't think this was, a, this was a P wave, and you thought this was, just keep dividing it in half and keep dividing it, and you'll eventually find out where the P wave is. But it's right there. That's the buried one. And that's the buried one on this side. So premature ventricular contraction, wide, bizarre QRS that appears before it's supposed to. So this one's appearing before the P wave occurred. Now this T wave is still as a result of this QRS complex, okay? So it went T wave, QRS, then a P wave, then a T wave. Atrial flutter, uh, rapid atrial rate, baseline between QRS has this jagged sawtooth pattern. And I think all these P wave, you would agree that all of this looks like a sawtooth. That's the classic. Oh, one other thing about this uh, premature ventricular contraction. We don't get too excited about one of these. I get a little excited when I see a run of three of them together. I see six of them together, then I get real happy, because then I get to give drugs. And we'll talk about that in a minute. For this, for atrial flutter, treatment options include cardioversion, rate control with beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, um, if it's chronic, some of the antiarrhythmic drugs. Here's atrial fibrillation, really there's no defined P So We could sit here for an hour and go, well, I think this might be a P wave. Well, this one might be a P wave. We probably would all come to some agreement, maybe. But you really can't. If you have to think about it that hard to determine whether something's a P wave or not, it's not. So really no discernible P wave activity, this coarse wandering baseline, and then irregularly irregular ventricular rhythm. If you look at the distance between the R waves, they're irregular distance so here it's about three boxes here it's about two and two big boxes and two little here it's a whopping four boxes four big and two little and it never repeats on a regular interval so this is irregularly irregular R to R intervals with no discernible P wave activity that's a fib you can see ventricular rates uh, up over 100 to 200 um, Rate control is the treatment here, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers. If they're in heart failure and they're in this, don't give them calcium channel blockers. Calcium channel blockers are contraindicated in heart failure. Rhythm control, amiodarone, uh, cardioversion, as long as there's no clots. And don't forget about anticoagulation. One of the things they like to do with this is they like to give you a scenario. 65 year old presents with mental status changes, weakness in their right arm. Here's their EKG. Because people who have atrial fibrillation are at an increased risk for clots and having strokes, so what they're telling you is, read this EKG. You'll notice it's AFib. You know that's a risk factor for stroke. That's how they got. Instead of just saying the person has a history of AFib, they'll give you the EKG to interpret instead. Multifocal atrial tachycardia. Uh, this is very common in patients who have con- uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease (COPD). They have some differing in R to R intervals, but you know, from here to here, it's very subtle here, but they can have it. The difference here is multiple shaped P waves. Multifocal atrial tachycardia means that the atrium, where it's supposed to be firing from, it's supposed to be firing from um, SA node to AV node, it's firing in all these different spots on the atrium. And that's why all the P waves look different. They're still going to the AV node, but they're firing from different spots. So when you look at the if we go back here, look at all these this, even though this is premature ventricular contraction, all these P waves look exactly the same. Okay, except for that one I know. But all of these look exactly the same. That's not the case. Whoops, with multifocal atrial tachycardia. This P wave's got a little bump right here. This one looks a little different. They all look a little different because they're firing from different spots on the atrium. That's multifocal atrial tachycardia. Treat the underlying cause, whatever's causing it, or give them calcium channel blockers to suppress the drive. Proxysmal supraventricular tachycardia, this is a re-entry, very common in the elderly with underlying heart disease. Um, Classic presentation is somebody who's got a history or presents with palpitations. This one's always in your differential, and this is very common, okay? You can try vagal maneuvers, uh, have them bear down. Um, drugs, though, adenosine is the drug of choice, beta blockers. Really, all you have here is atrial activity is typically not noted. The rate, you don't see any discernible P wave activity here. Like even with A flutter, I mean, A fib was all chaotic. You don't see anything here, really. And what little bit you do uh, in this case, it's just the rate is so fast. Usually, they're around 150 to 180. So they'll give you, I mean, a lot of people with sinus tach don't have palpitations. So when they start mentioning palpitations or anxiety, uh, think about PSVT. Adenosine is a great drug, okay? It's the drug of choice here. It'll work like that. Um, the other thing you can try is cardiac crowded massage. Just don't massage both sides at the same time unless you want them to pass out. Now, other things with ventricular tachycardia, uh, they originate below the bundle of his, don't worry about that. Precipitating causes though, electrolyte abnormalities, acid base, hypoxemia, MI. Now if you have just short runs of VTAC, we consider that stable. So three to four beats really in rapid succession, that's okay. You start getting unstable where you get long runs, six, seven, eight or longer, and they start having symptoms. Whenever I used to get called by the cardiac tech monitors, EKG techs on the floor, well they're having a run of VTAC, they had six beats in a row. What's the patient doing? Uh, They're fine. Okay, great. Treatment, uh, antiarrhythmics, amiodarone, lidocaine, procainamide. If they're unstable, cardioversion may be required. I'm not going to go through any of the uh, antiarrhythmic drugs. We could be here forever. Now, with VTAC, these are those same wide, bizarre QRS complexes we saw with the PVCs, the premature ventricular contractions, but now we're getting a whole run of them. So there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, so these wide QRSs, bizarre in appearance, but they're uniform. They all look the same, and you really can't see any of the other waves. so this is ventricular tachycardia. Now you can get ventricular fibrillation, which is totally disorganized, none of this looks the same. Disorganized electrical activity, ischemic heart disease, ventricular dysfunction, defibrillation. There is some electrical activity here, so defibrillation will work. You need some electrical activity for defibrillations to work. This is life-threatening. Oops, and they can convert. We're going to go back, don't worry, to this, which is asystole. The last thing I want to talk about are some of these heart blocks. First, second, and third degree heart blocks. First degree heart block, the only thing that's abnormal is the PR interval is prolonged. And if you look from here to here, greater than 0.2, that should be how many little blocks? Five? So we've got five just from there, maybe six if you wanna count that one? Seven, eight, maybe nine. So that's definitely prolonged. But everything else is normal. There's a P wave, QRS, T wave, P wave, QRS, T wave, P wave, QRS, T wave. All the other intervals are fine. So this is the first degree heart block, just a prolonged PR interval. Now you can see how hard it would be if they give you a rhythm strip on the exam to try to go through all of these different diseases. That's why, look at the five choices. Ooh, they say first degree heart block is an option here. I should see a prolonged PR interval. Ooh, I don't. Cross that one off. That's why you want to work these backwards. Mobitz uh, one or Winkiebach, this is a second-degree heart block. Progressive lengthening of the PR interval until a QRS complex is dropped. So look at this one. From here to here, it's about four blocks. So one, two, three, four blocks. From here to here now, we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven blocks. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe nine blocks. Whoops, where'd it go? It dropped. So this PR interval here to here to here is getting longer, and then you drop a QRS complex. So progressive lengthening of PR interval until a QRS drops after a P wave disappears. There's no QRS here. And this repeats, that's Mobitz 1 or Winkiebach. Think of this if they tell you, you might want to think about an inferior wall MI. Uh, this is fairly common in people after an inferior wall MI. Mobitz two, somewhat the same, only one subtle difference though. Still secondary heart block. The difference is constant PR intervals. So I know you can't see the whole thing, but there is the same as there, and then it dropped. Here's another drop. The distance from here to here, from there to there, these are all the same PR intervals, and then it dropped. So Mobitz one, whoops, Mobitz one, lengthening of the PR interval until one is dropped. Mobitz two, normal PR intervals, but a dropped beat. So that's the difference between the Mobitz one and the Mobitz two. Third degree, neither parts of the heart are in sync. Atrium are beaten at their rate, and the ventricles are beaten at their rate. So there's no syncage here whatsoever. I've marked out the P waves for you, and then you can see which ones are QRS complexes. You can see the P waves are very regular intervals. They're beating right along, and so is the QRS. They're each working at their own pacemaker rate, but they're not in sync. So that's a complete heart block. Asystole, no complexes. Cardiac standstill. What time is it? We're supposed to take a break at 9.15. 8.40? Okay. Somebody let me know, wave your hand or pass out or do something when it gets to be, I think it's 9.15 we're supposed to take a break. Okay, Because I took my uh, phone off for this. Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, or WPW. This is due to an AV bypass track. The classic three things that you're gonna see in WPW, a wide QRS complex, short PR intervals, and these delta waves. Now, here's the full EKG, and it's really, can be somewhat difficult to see, so this person, they blew this up, so it's, you lose some of the detail of the waves because we really blew it up big. But here's this short PR interval. This is only one, two, maybe three, not even three boxes, more like two and a half boxes, so it's definitely less than three. Wide QRS complex, this one's a little bit narrow here, but this slow upstroke right here, this is the delta wave. And if you look right here, there's the delta wave. So, wide QRS complex, short PR interval, and the presence of delta waves, think um, WPW. Okay, moving on to GI, esophagitis. anybody else getting warm in here or just me just me okay must be that fever malaria um, esophagitis most common on the exam is infectious esophagitis and there's three major etiologies for infectious esophagitis and that's candida albicans herpes simplex and cytomegalovirus okay CMV usually you'll see this in immunocompromised patients and by them we're talking about HIV AIDS chronic steroid users, leukemia, lymphoma patients, post-chemotherapy patients, transplant patients, okay? Normal run-of-the-mill, walking down the street person with no immunocompromise is not gonna get these infections. Progressive odynophagia and dysphagia, so pain with swallowing, trouble swallowing. You can see here is the whitey patches uh, from somebody with Canada uh, esophagitis. Now, they're not gonna show you uh, EGD pictures like this. This is above and beyond primary care. Okay, so how are they gonna give you clues? Well, they're gonna give you clues by telling you what's going on in the oropharynx. If a person has candidate albicans causing their esophagitis, odds are they have thrush in their mouth, okay? If it's herpes simplex causing their uh, esophagitis, odds are they have herpes lesions in their mouth. So that's how they're gonna make you go one way or the other. The test of choice here, uh, EGD, uh, barium swallow, not so much anymore biopsy. Anything that looks abnormal needs to be biopsy to rule out malignancy. Treatment depends on the etiology. Uh, niastatin, uh, Clotrimazole for Canada, Fluconazole if they have AIDS, Acyclovir for herpes, and Gancyclovir for CMV. Remember, um, Acyclovir does not cover cytomegalovirus. Other causes, pill-induced, very common in the elderly. Okay, and I've even listed some of the drugs that can do this. Um, doxycycline is classic okay Um, patients who are on chronic doxycycline for whatever reason really run into getting this pill induced esophagitis they present with substernal chest pain uh, can be pretty nasty but if you are familiar with any of these drugs all these drugs what's common with all of them they're whoppers they're huge okay and people don't drink enough water when they take their pills Treatment here is sucrophate or caraphate. It's the one that coats and soothes. Radiation esophagitis, anytime they get chest radiation over 3,000 rads, if they've got a lymphoma in their chest and they're getting radiation to that lymph node, what's right by it? The esophagus. You can't block it, so it's going to get some radiation. Treatment for radiation esophagitis is stop the radiation. The GI tract is really good about turning itself over every, like, 7 to 14 days. So it'll only take a little while for their uh, epithelial cells to regenerate. And then caustic ingestion of drain cleaners, bleaches, etc. Uh, one of the worst, weirdest ones I ever saw, I had a little guy come into the ER um, with esophageal pain. And we looked in his mouth, it was all burnt. we said, what did you swallow? He says, well, it turned out to be Draino." And I said, what are we, you know, and then you're thinking, okay, somebody's trying to kill themselves, commit suicide, why? He says, no, I thought it was my Lanta. What? I store my Mylanta and my Drain all right next to each other underneath the sink. Who does that? Okay, um, but that was his story and he was sticking with it. So, um, with their cost of agents like this, any kind of lie or anything, remember you don't want them to bring it back up. It burned on the way down, what's it going to do on the way back up? Burn them again. So those are not the ones you want to induce vomiting in. Some motor disorders that can happen with the esophagus arise from disease of the smooth muscle or intrinsic nervous system. Acclasia is the most common. Uh, That's where you get loss of ganglion cells leading to increased tone and impaired relaxation. GERD, esophageal reflux disease, is loss of lower esophageal sphincter tone. not tight and the acid is refluxing back up. Aklasia is where that lower esophageal sphincter tone is too tight, it doesn't relax and stuff doesn't make it through, okay? Diffuse esophageal spasm, chest pain, dysphagia. everybody, I mean, it used to be, even when I was working in the hospital, oh, they ruled out MI, they had chest pain, they probably have diffuse esophageal spasm. If we really knew how uncommon that was, we wouldn't give everybody the diagnosis of a diffuse esophageal spasm, it's really uncommon. With eclasia, they'll have dysphagia, liquids and solids. They'll regurgitate hours after eating of non-acidic material. Basically, what they bring back up is what they put down. You can look at it and go, hmm, look, a Wendy's Whopper or a Burger King Whopper. There's the pickle, there's the lettuce, because it never made it to the stomach because it couldn't get through this. So large amounts, what they had before, non-acidic materials, their esophagus is dilated fluid filled esophagus with this bird beak stricture and just a little bit of the contrast gets through there to fill the rest of the stomach. So this is incomplete relaxation here of the lower esophageal sphincter. You can measure it by pressures. Treatment is muscle relaxants, nifedipine. You can dilate this. If you dilate it, they usually have to come back every few uh, couple of times a year to get this redilated. And you can use botulinum uh, toxin injections as well. Uh, but this is the classic bird's beak appearance of somebody with aclasia. Mallory Weiss tear, this is a non-penetrating mucosal tear at the GE junction due to a rise in intra-abdominal pressure, usually alcoholics. They'll almost always give you that in the question. You know, 65-year-old alcoholic presents with. Prior history of vomiting and retching, what they'll do is they'll say, I was throwing up, throwing up, throwing up, and then I threw up again, and it was blood everywhere. So the first couple of times they retched and vomited, then they t- that caused the tear, then the next time they vomited up all the blood. So, it's usually self limiting. It's painless hematemesis, though they all think they're dying. Treatment is endoscopic exam. Uh, most of these will stop spontaneously, though you may have to inject them with epinephrine, epinephrine or cauterize them. But vomit, vomit, vom- alcoholic who vomit, vomit, vomits, and then brings up blood that's a Mallory Weiss tear. Esophageal neoplasms due to chronic irritation, inflammation, both squamous cell and adenocarcinoma. Um, adenocarcinoma links to Barrett's which is a complication of GERD so watch in the scenario the person who's had long-standing GERD what happens is they cause dysplasia of their uh, epithelial cells so GERD leads to Barrett's Barrett's leads to esophageal cancer okay it's sort of the way you guys think actinic keratosis leads to cancer this is the Barrett's leading to cancer okay Risk factors, alcohol, smoking, aclasia, radiation therapy, uh, present as a mechanical obstruction first, then progressive dysphagia, uh, solids first, then liquids, some pain with swallowing, anemia, weight loss. Anytime they mention weight loss in a question on the exam, your radar should go up for cancer. Okay. Barium swallow, EGD with biopsy, the test of choice for anything you think is a malignancy is what? Biopsy, biopsy, biopsy. OK? It's always the answer. Tumor's the rumor, tissue's the issue. cancer's the answer. You always want to get tissue. EGD with biopsy, though, you can see here's the dilated esophagus, and then here's the um, stricture. and then all of this, all the way around that's remember, you've got to think three-dimensional here. This is all tumor encasing that esophagus. OK? esophagectomy, uh, radiation, uh, chemotherapy. Uh, The drainage here, lymphatic drainage of the esophageal region goes right to the liver. So it's very common for these people to present with liver metastases as well. Esophageal strictures, uh, lower esophageal ring. Uh, This is just a ring, a uh, uh, circumferential ring around the esophagus, intermittent solid dysphagia. uh, Diagnosed by barium swallow, you can actually see the ring and then you dilate them. Zenker's diverticulum, it's just a little outpouching, posterior pharynx, um, proximal esophagus, where they get a little outpouching. It's like a a diverticulum in the large intestine or in the small intestine. Dysphagia, halitosis. Halitosis in a question, bad breath, not very many things cause bad breath in the exam. Well, I mean, a lot of things cause it, but for exam purposes. Zenker's diverticulum is one, lung abscess is another. diagnose it by barium swallow, and then treatment is surgery. Esophageal web, this is a very thin squamous epithelial mucosal membrane in the mid to upper esophagus. Typically, these patients are asymptomatic. They may have some dysphagia to solids. There's this weird condition called plummer vinson syndrome where iron deficiency is associated with, um, they get these strictures or these webs along with severe iron deficiency and dysphagia. It's called plummer vinson syndrome. And once again, treatment here is to dilate them. Esophageal varices, these are dilated submucosal veins secondary to portal hypertension. Who gets portal hypertension? Alcoholics. Okay. Portal hypertension due to cirrhosis. You can see in this picture all those veins on the surface there. And here's the, auto- not the same person, this is an autopsy photo. And you can see of the esophagus cut open all those superficial uh, veins. Signs and symptoms of upper GI bleed and treatment is endoscopic, exam and cauterize the bleeding. Cholecystitis, inflammation of the gallbladder, obstruction by a stone in the cystic duct, distension, inflammation, infection. Uh, the risk factors, 40, female. So 40s, female, obesity, um, parity, increased uh, triglyceride, elevated triglycerides, medications. Uh, estrogens, uh, birth control pills, uh, clofibrate for high cholesterol, ceftriaxone, the cephalosporin. So all the risk factors for here. Right upper quadrant pain, fever, elevated white count, unremitting pain may radiate to the right scapula is pretty classic for this. Right after meals, nausea, vomiting, some dehydration. Right upper quadrant tenderness, it's Murphy's sign that's positive. So when you push on the right upper quadrant, uh, it kind of stops them from wanting to take a breath in. That's a positive Murphy's sign. Increased white count with the left shift. Remember left shift, that's increased number of bands and in neutrophils. Increased bilirubin and alkaline phosphatase. Alkaline phosphatase and gamma-GT, your GGT, are your tests for obstruction of the gallbladder or the liver. Your AST and ALT are your tests for hepatocellular damage of the liver. So elevated AST, ALT, hepatocellular damage, elevated A- or um, GGT, gamma glutamyl transpeptidase or alkaline phosphatase that is for obstruction. Ultrasound, look for thick gallbladder wall, sludge, and stones. Um, A couple of years ago, when I used to do this, I used to tell people, don't worry about having to read ultrasounds and MRIs and CT scans. That's not true anymore. They're putting them on there. My argument always was, those aren't really considered what I think as being primary care PA things. I don't know if any of you in the, any of you in the office have a CT scanner? No? Really? Wow. Uh, most primary care people don't have a CT scanner in their office, or an ultrasound. But they are starting to put some of these on there. And some of the classic ones, especially for ultrasound, is for gallbladder. So here's the gallbladder, there's the stone causing the shadow, and then this is the uh, thickening of the wall. So anything greater than five millimeters is considered abnormal. This one is 6.7 millimeters. So thick gallbladder wall, the presence of stones, that tells you you've got uh, cholecystitis. A HIDA scan uh, can be used. It's pretty archaic. You don't use it too much anymore. This is where the gallbladder fails to fill. The problem is if they have an elevated bilirubin already, you cannot do a HIDA scan. Treatment, antibiotics, ampicillin plus aminoglycoside. Uh, your major worry here is that they get an ascending infection, ascending cholangitis. It's usually due to an organism called enterococcus, which comes from the gut flora. That's why the ampicillin and aminoglycosides, they work really well together to kill enterococcus. And for aminoglycosides, we're talking gentamicin, tobramycin. And then treatment of choice, my favorite, surgery. When in doubt, cut it out, right? Cirrhosis, this is end stage of chronic liver disease, involves fibrosis, it's irreversible. Weakness, fatigue, anorexia, weight loss, very nonspecific. I'll give you the causes here. The first two are the most common, alcohol and viral hepatitis. Don't forget about metabolic, though. Uh, Autoimmune is usually gonna be a uh, 40-year-old female with a positive ANA on the exam. But metabolic, three classic metabolics. Wilson's disease, okay. Hemochromatosis, and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Alpha-1 antitrypsins get cirrhosis plus COPD because that alpha-1 antitrypsin uh, helps you break down the protease enzymes in your lung so that they don't destroy your lung. If you're deficient in this alpha-1 antitrypsin. You have increased lung breakdown, so these people end up with cirrhosis and COPD at a very young age, and they're usually non-smokers. You go, non-smoker with COPD? That makes you think alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Hemochromatosis is iron overload. It can be genetic, it can be acquired. And there, the iron precipitates out in all organs of your body, including your liver, leading to cirrhosis. And Wilson's disease is a copper abnormality copper precipitates out. So look for the underlying cause, abdominal ultrasound, CT scan with liver biopsy, if you wanna rule out the metabolics. Avoid alcohol, treat the underlying cause, liver transplant, there are some complications here. Now remember, they got the esophageal varices because of portal hypertension. It's the same mechanism why these people get uh, varices and uh, hemorrhoids. People who have uh, portal hypertension get varicosities in their esophagus, and rectal varicosities, they get hemorrhoids because those are the only two venous systems that drain directly to the portal system. So any pressure that's built up in the portal system is transferred out to those two areas. So esophageal varices and hemorrhoids are very common in patients with portal hypertension. Um, They can get varices, hemorrhage, ascites, hepatorenal syndrome, jaundice, encephalopathy. This is due to uh, inability to metabolize the ammonia. So their ammonia level will be elevated. And treatment of choice there is lactulose to break down and bind up the ammonia. Now signs and symptoms, uh, jaundice, edema, spider angiomas, talactasias, pulmonary erythema, purpura. The reason they get the purpura is because this is also where you're making clotting factors in your liver. So they're losing the vitamin K-dependent factors along with all the others, so they end up having bruising. Um, This is also the place where you make a lot of your hormones. Everything starts with a cholesterol framework, because that's where you make cholesterols in your liver. So if you don't have enough of that, you can't make the sex hormones, estrogens and testosterone. So that's why in men, they end up with signs of feminization, like gynecomastia, muscle atrophy, and then small right lobe of the liver. Some of the treatment of the complications that occur, the varicosities, uh, beta blockers to decrease the portal hypertension, uh, the ascites, uh, paracentesis, drawing off the fluid or sodium restrictions or spironolactone. Spironolactone is a potassium sparing diuretic. Um, Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, uh, antibiotics, and then hepatic encephalopathies I mentioned, uh, the lactulose. Oh, I forgot this was in here. Here's the, metabolic disorders. So the alpha-1 antitrypsin, the Wilson's disease, and the hemochromatosis. Okay, now what time do you guys have? Nine? Let me go through some of the rheumatology things then. We probably won't get through all, maybe we will. Um, rheumatology uh, can be, there's a lot of stuff on here. I'm not gonna go through all the fractures and all those sorts of things. That'll be for another time. We're gonna focus on the, uh, the rheumatology issues, the lupus and the things like that. But Just questions, information from the question can help you narrow down your options here. Is it polyarticular, more than one joint involved? Rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Uh, Parvo B19 virus um, can cause an arthritis-like picture. It more commonly causes uh, aplastic anemia, uh, Parvo B19. Hepatitis B can do this. Monoarticular rheumatoid or osteoarthritis. That's your big separator between RA and OA. How many joints are involved? One joint, it's OA. More than one joint? All right, now, I saw osteoarthritis. Yes, if they've had multiple traumas to multiple bones, they can have multiple sites of osteoarthritis, but it's typical, one, bo- uh, one joint. Gout is typically one joint, pseudogout. Septic arthritis is usually one joint, and trauma uh, can be multiple, but usually one. Is it acute or chronic? Can help you. Are there systemic symptoms? We'll talk about these with lupus, Sjogren's, scleroderma. And is the joint inflamed? If there's, inflama- if there's no inflammation, it's OA. All the rest of these have inflammation. Now, gout, this is an abnormality in purine metabolism. Where do you get purines from? Meats. You'll see sodium urate crystals in the synovial fluid. There's our red hot big joint, usually the great toe. Can be any joint, though. Just because it's not the big toe, or great toe, I don't know what's so great about it. Just because it's not the big toe doesn't mean it's not gout. You can get gout in the knee, you can get gout in the wrist, you can get gout in the hands, you can get it anywhere. But classically, it's the great toe. Abrupt onset, throbbing pain, first attack usually at night. Men, usually around age 45, pain, redness, swelling, can look like a cellulitis. But the classic thing is these sodium urate crystals. Increased uh, serum uric acid levels can be noted, but it's these uric acid crystals, sodium urate crystals, synovial fluid. They look like little needles, and it's not impossible for them to show you a picture of these. They do look like little needles, and you'll see a lot of them, a whole bunch of them. Treatment is high-dose anseds, coltracine or steroids. Uh, Allopyrinol or xyloprim, uh, this is for uh, overproducers. Um, Allopyrinol is not to be used for acute gout. It's used to suppress the flare-ups of gout. So if they give you an acute gout scenario, treatment of choice is not allopurinol or xyloprim. Treatment of choice is coltracine and anseds. Avoid the thiazide diuretics, the furosemide or Lasix, um, cyclosporin, aspirin, even alcohol, because they all elevate uric acid levels. So it's not impossible for them to give you a question and not ask you how to treat this. You'll make the diagnosis of gout, but what do you have to do as a health maintenance thing for this patient? And it might tell you the person's hypertensive and they're on a thiazide diuretic. The correct answer would be take them off the thiazide diuretic and treat them with something else. Calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate deposition disease, CPPD, otherwise known as pseudogout. Calcium-containing deposits in the pericellular matrix of the cartilage, usually large joints in the lower extremities, knees, ankles, but also the wrists and the shoulders. They can be asymptomatic. They get calcium pyrophosphate crystals crystal synovial fluid. These are rhomboid-shaped, but classically is these chondrocalcinosis on X-ray, and I'll show you a picture of one in a minute. Treatment is steroids and anseds. Uric acid-lowering drugs like um, xyloprim or alpirinol have no benefit here whatsoever. They will not work. So here's the uh, chondrocalcinosis in the uh, meniscus. So these are these calcium precipitating out in the meniscus. And there's one over here as well. So this is pseudogout. Polymyalgia rheumatica uh, aching, stiffness in the proximal muscles, inflammation of the geno- uh, synovial joints, hip and shoulders is classic. Okay? Symptoms occur for greater than a month, tend to be self-limited, linked to giant cell arteritis. guys remember what giant cell arteritis is? That's the temporal arteritis. Older, sudden change in vision, biopsy of the temporal artery, palpable cord, there possible. Treatment of choice is steroids, steroids, and more steroids. And treat them before you make the diagnosis because if you do it till, wait till after you've made the diagnosis, it's too late, their vision won't come back probably. So those two are linked together usually over the age of 50. Remember, almost all of the autoimmune diseases are more common in women than men. Clinically abrupt or gradual onset, aching, stiffness in the morning, may have some weight loss, some low grade fever. There are some definitive diagnostic criteria you have to meet for polymyalgia rheumatica. Age over 50, aching and stiffness for greater than a month, at least two of three areas affected, morning stiffness, sed rate greater than 50. Um, Now, this is where the normal range thing they give you is not going to help you. Normal ranges for SED rates vary with age. Normal SED rate is half your age. So, if it's an 80 year old patient, their normal SED rate can go up to 40. Okay? This is for anyone over the age of, this is true for anyone over the age of 40. Okay? So, if you're 50, your normal SED rate can be up to 25. That's the upper limit of normal. So here we make it over... So I guess if your patient is 110, you'd expect their SED rate to be over 55, then I guess. Exclude other diseases, and these patients rapidly respond to steroids. I mean rapid. Like in less than 24 hours, they will feel dramatically better. It's amazing. Other things, muscle tenderness, no loss of muscle strength here. Negative ANA, rheumatoid factor, increased SED rate, uh, normocytic, normochromic anemia, if they're anemic, they have anemia of chronic disease and treatment of steroids, uh, I don't know why the font changed there all of a sudden, uh, and ANSADS can be used. Ryder syndrome, uh, this is a reactive arthritis response to an infectious process elsewhere in the body. Classic is chlamydia, okay, but don't forget about the uh, GI infections, gastroenteritis. The other one is campylobacter, is very common. We don't see too much Yersinia in this country, okay, uh, but there's a lot of cl- uh, Campylobacter, so Chlamydia and Campylobacter can link to Rea- Reiter's syndrome or what do we call it now, reactive arthritis. It's associated with HLA B twenty-seven, uh, peak age in the twenties, men more than women. And they can be asymptomatic uh, to having arthritis. Then classically, as the uh, arthritis, conjunctivitis, and urethritis. You'll have sausage toes or fingers. Classic description of those. Uh, mucocutaneous lesions these small shallow painless ulcers on the glands of the penis um, the thing there is multiple ulcers single painless ulcer is what syphilis single painful ulcer is shankaroid. homophilus ducri and then multiple painless ulcers could be writer's syndrome or uh, reactive arthritis Increased sed rate, uh, antibiotics to treat the infection, whatever triggered it. Indomethacin is, if you're gonna use an anset, is a really good one here. And then steroids if they have skin or eye disease. This is one of the seronegative spondylar arthropathies. Okay? So in other words, they have inflammation, but their ANA is negative. All these things are negative except for their sed rate. So negative ANA, whoops, um, negative uh, rheumatoid factor. Lupus, this is a chronic multi-system inflammatory disease. It's autoimmune, um, mainly women, 90%. Etiology is unknown. There's our drug-induced lupus causes again. Procainamide, hydralazine, isoniazide, quinidine. Um, Fever, uh, the discoid or malar rash, arthritis pain, photosensitivity, oral ulcers. This one is multi-system. Okay. Any of you watch the TV show House? I mean, when it used to be on. It was like in the first 15 minutes of every episode, one of the differentials that always came up was lupus. And then House would say the ANA is negative, okay? Which really isn't all that helpful. To really say lupus is negative, you should say the double-stranded DNA is negative, um, but uh, that's okay. Now, in pregnancy, you do have this anti-Rho antibody that they can make, which causes the placenta, and that can actually lead to neonatal lupus and the heart block in the neonate. So, If they give you a scenario, the woman who's pregnant delivers and they tell you something about the kid, it could be from the woman's uh, lupus. Positive ANA, ANA's are screening test, anti-nuclear antibody. If it's negative, don't do anything else, please. Because if something else turns out positive, you don't know how to interpret it. And I'll show you the other ones in a minute. So positive double-stranded DNA and anti-Smith or SM antibodies are classic for lupus. If it's drug-induced, it's positive anti-histone elevated sed rate. If they have antiphospholipid antibodies, most of them do but not all, that puts them in what's called a hypercoagulable state. These are the people who um, this is the 30 uh, year old who's had a pulmonary embolism in multiple DVTs. This is the young female who's had three miscarriages all under the 20 weeks gestation. So these are all people who are at hypercoagulable states increased risk for clots. Treatment uh, steroids, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, methyltrexate, and They're not gonna ask you too many questions about the treatment of lupus, other than the basics with steroids, because now you're starting to, but this is a great question where the answer is refer to rheumatology, okay? Watch for that in your area of expertise as well, okay? You might, that might be something in the condition that, well, I would treat this, I would do this, this, and this. But maybe the correct answer they're looking for is refer to dermatology. Because remember, you're taking this as a primary care PA. You're not specializing. Do they have the derm specialty exam yet? Not yet? I'm surprised they didn't do that one first. One of them first. Not that I believe in those things. I think that's gonna be our stupidest thing in the world is those specialty exams. I think it's going to pigeonhole people and you're going to go out for that another job after you've done something for too long and they're going to say well you don't have a specialty in uh, hospital medicine i'm not going to hire you so i think we're shooting ourselves in the foot here but that's just oh i'm up on a soapbox i guess i'll do it anyway okay okay scleroderma or systemic sclerosis this is a disorder of connective tissue fibrosis and thickening of the skin uh, overproduction, accumulation of collagen. These are the people that look like they have hide-bound, tight skin. They'll have contractures of their extremities, especially upper extremities, um, face, and trunk. Uh, you can have limited cutaneous or diffuse cutaneous. Once again, this is autoimmune, so mainly women over men. Joint stiffness, uh, arth- arthralgias, myalgias, this hide-bound skin. You can kind of see how tight that skin looks. Um, I've seen some cases of this where their skin was so tight, their fingers were all gnarled, their wrists were contracted, and their elbows were contracted because the skin was so tight. They couldn't straighten them out. Okay? Uh, they'll have systemic symptoms. This is carpal tunnel. Uh, be careful. Okay, One of the classic things for carpal tunnel is what occupation? What are they going to tell you in the question? Keyboard operator. Okay, they've gotten away. It used to be well, the first one I took, I remember it was like secretary. We didn't have keyboards when I first took the exam. Okay, uh, we still took it on paper, you know, rock, and we had to chisel our answers in. Um, but now it's keyboard operators. But they're going to get away from that. They're going to give you a couple other more common ones. Scleroderma is not so common, but it does it. The other one that's real common is pregnancy for carpal tunnel. Okay, so just because oh it can't be carpal tunnel, they didn't tell me they typed on a keyboard, still could be. Okay. They're also, uh, what I heard is, um, they're starting to do secondary treatments more. Okay. What's the treatment of choice for strep throat? Penicillin. They're not doing that anymore. They're going, person has classic strep throat, but they're allergic to penicillin. Do you know what drug to use second? Okay. They're hypertensive, but they can't take a thiazide. Do you know what's second? Okay. They've got gonorrhea, but they can't give them ceftriaxone. What's second? So they're starting to get more and more to what's second because they know you know what's first. I'm not saying all of them are like that, but watch for those. So don't just learn the primary treatment for everything. For some of those, look at the secondaries as well. Labs, positive ANA, positive anti 70 or anti-centromere is the more specific uh, anti-nuclear antibodies. Treatment, uh, ACE inhibitors are great here for renal failure, calcium channel blockers for the renods they can develop, Uh, D-penicillamine for the skin changes, but immunosuppressive therapy is the treatment of choice. Sjogren's, this is another inflammatory disease, a lymphocytic infiltration of the exocrine glands. These people have dry eyes, dry mouth. You guys probably see a fair amount of this. Mainly women again, increased incidence in uh, B-cell lymphoma in these patients. So dry eyes, dry mouth, oral sores, dry skin, low-grade fever, malaise. I, if you've ever been listening to me, I hate the words low-grade fever. It's like almost pregnant. You either have a fever or you don't. Okay, My definition of fever is anything over 100.5, that's fever. Unless you're neutropenic, uh, then it's a little bit less than that. Uh, there is a Schwimmer's test, which is a measure of actually how wet the eyeballs are. Um, that actually, somebody told me showed up on one of their exams a few years ago, that term. Uh, they didn't tell me what the question is, I don't want to know what the questions are, but they said, you got to put this in the chauvin's thing you do because they mentioned that test. It's okay, I'll throw it in there. Um, autoantibodies, ANA, rheumatoid factor, anti ro anti-Law, uh, biopsy will show the lymphocytic infiltrates, and treatment is artificial tears and saliva, and then immunosuppressants again. Here's the rheumatology testing and autoantibodies. The ANA is the screen, okay? If that's negative, don't do anything else, except maybe a rheumatoid factor, but don't do anything else. Don't do a double-stranded DNA, don't do anti-Smith, don't do Roe or La, don't do scleral. ANA is negative, they're negative, okay? Yes, question, oh, is it time? Okay, this is my last slide for this section anyway. Perfect. So don't do any of those others. But then this is linking the test to the disease. So the ANCA, Wagner's, antihistone, drug-induced, we talked about, anti scleral 70 scleroderma. So this is just trying to give you a summary of what the tests are with the disease they link to. Okay, here we go. Hopefully people are still out getting a snack or i just bored to tears, all of them. So either way. Okay, we're going to move on here, uh, cover a couple more organ systems here. Now, I've had people say, oh, Well, we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about that. Well, I couldn't talk about everything, so if I didn't cover your area, I'm sorry. Um, but ask them to have me back next year, and then I'll add that next year. So, endocrine, Cushing syndrome. Yeah, it can be either endogenous or exogenous. Uh, exogenous is excessive steroid medication, so we do it to them. Uh, Endogenous is Cushing's disease. um, Excessive secretion of um, ACTH by the pituitary. uh, Very common in premenopausal women. Clinically, they present with obesity. It's usually central obesity. So thin wasting of the extremities, central obesity. um, Extremities appear wasted. The buffalo hump, uh, the fatty hump between the scapula. Thin skin, hypertension, hirsutism, amenorrhea, uh, fatigue, proximal muscle weakness, stray, poor wound healing, all the classic signs from excessive cortisol. So here's what they look like. Um, you know, she's got kind of the moon facies. Uh, there's the uh, thinning or thinning or, uh, arms and extremities with the central obesity. Now, in endocrine, if you're thinking that they have too much of a hormone, you usually do a suppression test. If you're thinking that they don't make enough of something, you do a stimulation test. So here our problem is too much cortisol, so we're gonna try to suppress it. So we're gonna do what's called the dexamethasone suppression test. And we're gonna look to see if we can suppress, you give them the dexamethasone injection, you wait uh, 24 hours, or you can do a 12 hour one, and you check their plasma cortisol, and if it's greater than 10, you've got a diagnosis. You can also see an increased free cortisol level in the urine. Random plasma cortisols are useless. They're not helpful. Because of the diurnal variation in your cortisol level, it's really very difficult to um, interpret those. So what we do is we do um, free uh, cortisol levels in the urine. Uh, They'll be hyperglycemic, uh, hypokalemic, the elevated white count. These are all the effects of the elevated cortisol. They're not diagnostic, but they're labs that you can see in Cushing syndrome. And if you're worried about a primary tumor in the pituitary, then an MRI of the pituitary gland is your test of choice. Treatment, depending on where the tumor is. Uh, transphenoidal resection, replacement therapy. We've got a lot of adrenal inhibitors uh, that you can use there. I'm not gonna go through all these on how they work. Uh, You'll have the slides, you can look at them uh, later. Addison's disease, this is primary corticoadrenal insufficiency. Autoimmune inflammation the adrenal cortex is the most common. TB, tuberculosis loves the lung, but it also loves the adrenal gland. Um, fungal infections, usually the more bizarre fungal infections. Uh, we'll do this. We'll talk about some of them towards the end here. Women more than men. Clinically, weakness, easy fatigue, orthostatic hypotension, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, weight loss, hyperpigmentation. This is what John F. Kennedy had. He had Addison's disease. Okay? It's one of the reasons he always looked so tan. One, he liked the sun, uh, but he also looked so tan because of his Addison's. Laboratory-wise, a lot of these endocrine disorders, the the physical exam findings are kind of nonspecific. There's a few like the pigmentation that helps with Addison's. Most of these are gonna be through the labs and through the specialty tests. So here, hyperkalemia in primary disease, hyponatremia, hypoglycemia. Um, The ACTH stimulation test, where you get the cortisol less than 20. Now we're trying to stimulate it um, because we think we have a deficiency. Low AM plasma cortisol, once again, not very helpful. The random cortisols are not very helpful. And then treatment is to supply them back with their cortisol or cortisone and a mineral corticoid. Agromegaly, this is excessive growth hormone from the anterior pituitary. It's agromegaly in adults. It's gigantism in children. It all depends on when the plates are fused. This is usually due to a pituitary adenoma. Uh, Ectopic production can also occur from pancreatic breast or lung um, tumors that affects bone growth and metabolism males more than females uh, enlargement of the hands feet skull uh, as the jaw gets bigger you start to notice space between the teeth okay I know David Letterman has a gap between his this is not just the front teeth this is all the teeth will get this gap there will be spacing um, be diabetic the weight gain increased kidney stones headache and visual field defects only if the pituitary tumor is big enough to be pushing on the optic chiasm That's when they'll get the headaches and they'll get the visual field defects. Um, Tests: insulin-like growth factor one will be elevated. It's kind of a screening test or diagnostic test for agromegaly. Growth hormone will be elevated. If it's a pituitary tumor, which most of these are, one of the other tumors that's often affected is the prolactin. And we'll talk about hyperprolactinemia in a second. Treatment, surgical removal of the tumor. Uh, Bromocryptine can actually suppress uh, the hormone. Uh, triotide for inhibiting uh, growth hormone secretion, and then radiation therapy. Um, guys, know who Tony Robbins is? The motivational speaker, the guy who made a bunch of money in real estate. He has agromegaly. Andre the Giant, the wrestler. That's gigantism. Okay. Hyperprolactinemia. Uh, lots of etiologies here. The classic one we always think about is pathologic due to tumors. Okay but it can be physiologic, due to exercise, pregnancy, stress, suckling. Pharmaceuticals, a biggie, okay? Um, estrogens, cimetidine, methyl dopa, protease inhibitors from HIV. Risperidone, okay, antipsychotic. Tricyclic, or the SSRIs and the tricyclics. So there's a lot of pharmaceutical etiologies for increased prolactin levels as well. It's not always a tumor, so watch. They don't waste information in questions. These questions are not going to be two paragraphs long with a lot of extraneous information in. They know you have a minute to do each question. So they're not going to make them long and drawn out. I've seen some from PA programs. I'm uh, An accreditation site visitor, I go around and visit PA programs as well for accreditation issues and I get to look at a lot of exams. And sometimes uh, programs will have the question takes up a whole page that's not a board-like question so if they start mentioning drugs in the question that the person's on that's a key should always trigger in your mind maybe it's one of these drugs that's causing a problem clinically with males erectile dysfunction gynecomastia decreased libido females probably the classic thing amenorrhea and galactorrhea. those are the two most common things and then the tumor gets larger once again visual field defects and headaches Now. Diagnosis, uh, MRI of the pituitary, rule out other causes. Uh, so, liver function tests, beta HCG. What's the most common cause of amenorrhea? Pregnancy. God, don't miss that on the exam. Okay? Get, always get people, I think I got that one wrong. Why? Because I thought they were trying to trick me. They're not trying to trick you. Okay? Common things happen commonly. That's why they're called common. Okay? When you hear hoofbeats, think? Horses though I prefer the zebras, okay? Um, Other things, treatment-wise, stop medications if at all possible, surgery, radiation therapy, once again, the dopamine agonist to shut down the production. Now, I know we didn't do, we go, well, where's diabetes? Where's hyperlipidemia? Those were the last years, so you'll have to come back again, or they'll have to have me back again. Benign prostatic hypertrophy, this is non-cancerous abnormal enlargement of the prostate gland onset third decade of life you're going what well that's when it starts you don't get symptoms till much later though thank goodness okay but the hypertrophy actually starts in the third decade of life which means what ages 20s first decade is 0 to 10 10 to 20 is second decade 20 to 30 is the third decade symptoms can start around age 50 significant problems around age 60 Uh, this is all related to uh, testosterone and estrogen They'll have blockage, passage of urine, uh, increased frequency, urgency, nocturia, hesitancy, hematuria, dribbling or dripping. Um, for those of you men out in the audience, this is the one guy you don't want to get behind at the sports game event. As you're all waiting in line to use the urinal and you pick a line, you go, oh, this is a short line. The reason it was short is because that guy's been standing there for 20 minutes because his prostate's twice the size of his head. Okay, So that's the signs and symptoms they're going to have. On exam, a rubbery enlarged prostate. You're gonna, they're gonna give you prostate exam findings on here. Enlarged, rubbery, think BPH. Nodular, hard, think cancer. Very tender, and I'm talking about very tender. You know, rectal exams are not fun anyway, and it's always some discomfort, but a very tender prostate, think prostatitis. So soft, rubbery, enlarged prostate, BPH. Rock hard, nodular cancer, very tender, prostatitis. Labs, cystoscopy, treatment, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, the alpha-1 adrenergic inhibitors, or surgical uh, terping them. Hydroseal. This is fluid between two layers of the tunica vaginalis. Uh, this will transilluminate. It's non-tender. So if you put a um, um, pen light up against it, it'll kind of glow. Uh, don't leave the pen light up against that. Scrotum too long, that pen light gets warm. Last thing you want to do is put a little mark, a burn mark, the shape of your pen light on the little kid's testicle or on his scrotum. Got to rule out testicular tumor, especially if this onsets later in life. Okay, there's a link between um, hydrocele and development of testicular cancer. Treatment: surgery if indicated, uh, if it's present past the age of 18 months. A varicocele, this is an engorgement of the internal spermatic veins above the uh, testes. Classically described as a bag of worms. They're getting away from those descriptions, this is one of them. Okay? Uh, Exam, non-tender, non-transluminable mass, usually on the left side. If it's on the right side and they're less than 10 years old, think abdominal or renal mass. And the reason being, the anatomy. Okay? The testicular vein comes off on the um, right side comes off the um, inferior vena cava, which is retroperitoneal. So if something is blocking um, venous return there, causing this distension in internal spermatic veins, it's gonna be a retroperitoneal mass. If it's acute onset, something new on the left side, there the testicular vein comes off the renal vein. So if it's a new acute onset of a left hydrocele, or I mean a left varicocele, think renal mass or renal tumor. So left, think renal tumor, right, think retroperitoneal tumor. They should diminish or disappear when the patient's supine because it's gravity, the blood flows back. Sudden onset, right varicocele, think, as I said, retroperitoneal malignancy. Left side, think renal carcinoma. Should say renal cell carcinoma. Treatment of surgery, and there's the uh, anatomy for you on where these are coming off. There's the testicular there. And there's the testicular there. About the only sensation or symptom these patients are going to complain of is a dull aching sensation when they're standing up. A dull aching sensation on that side of the scrotum. Other than that, it's really not that uh, painful. It is, um, there is a link to infertility uh, with varicoceles. Testicular torsion, uh, this is a urologic emergency where you get twisting of the spermatic spermatic cord and interferes with blood supply, usually ages 10 to 20. Why don't you see it under the age of 10? What haven't they gone through yet? No puberty. Scrotum, testicles haven't descended into the scrotum yet. There's really no way for them to twist. Acute onset, pain, swelling, elevation of the testicles may exacerbate the pain. non transilluminable Absent cremasteric reflex, remember what that one is? Stroke the inner thigh, testes should go up. Um, If it's greater than four to six hours, you could have ischemia and loss of the uh, testicles. Treatment Doppler, or labs Doppler ultrasound. A testicular ultrasound is the wrong answer. Testicular ultrasound tells you about tissue density. You need something that's gonna tell you about flow. This is a blood flow issue. So you need a Doppler ultrasound or nuclear scan to show decreased blood flow. Testicular ultrasound is the wrong answer. and It's a very common one for them to put on there because it's a great distractor, okay? Treatment, this is a surgical emergency. Manual detortion. Anybody ever try to manually detorse one of these? I've done it twice. Both times, within like 10 minutes, they both flipped back, okay, either I don't know how to manually detorse, which was actually the ER guy who I did this with. He said uh, he's not had any success either. He says he only tries it because it buys him time. He never, he said, I never manually detorse them and send them home. He says I still have urology see them. They still need to be evaluated, possible surgery. But he says if I uh, detorse it and buy them more time, that's a great thing. We can save the testicle. But uh, you can try manual detorsion. So here's what's happening. This is normal, and then it's rotating, spinning on itself, and you can see how that vas deferens and stuff is cutting off the blood flow. Kidney stones, nephro or urolithiasis, peak incidence between the ages of 30 and 50. Men more than women, now that I've reached 51, I don't think I have to worry about having my fifth kidney stone. I'm kidding, I'm probably gonna get them the rest of my life. Um, It has nothing to do with drinking too much Diet Coke. Uh, They're formed from calcium oxalate, it's the most common. Um, Calcium phosphate, cysteine, uric acid. Uric acid, watch for that one and they'll tell you the patient's got a history of gout. Cysteine is a genetic abnormality. You just don't have cysteine. You have to have a genetic abnormality producing too much cysteine crystals. Size does matter here, especially on the exam for clinical intervention. If it's less than five millimeters the size of the stone, they'll pass those without difficulty between 5 and 10 50 percent will pass greater than 10 millimeters they need to go in for a procedure okay my last one was 1.1 centimeters and it was long wasn't round it was elongated they went in to grab it with the hook and she couldn't grab it so I had to have a stent in for two weeks then they went in and crushed it Oh, I'll, this is this, this is funnier than heck though. This will break up the monotony here. I went back in for my follow-up visit. had my stent in, they crushed it, passed all the, the fragments, everything was great. I uh, go in to see the urologist, um, so she's got me in the room and she says, well, everything looks clear, your KUB, your abdominal film looks clear, there's no stone left in there, we're going to pull your stent. I said, great, when do we schedule that? She says, we're going to do it now. I went, what? I'm supposed to go back to the office. Oh no, no problem whatsoever. So get your pants off get ready Assistant will be in in a minute they'll get you all prepped and then I'll come in with assist scope and we'll pull the stent out okay so I get all ready this lady comes in do all the stuff she needs to prep She says, oh I see you're the PA program director at Northwestern and I said yeah She says, oh I'm going to apply and I said not here you're not not after what you're doing you have no chance of getting into my program anymore um, so uh, I was teasing her of course um, but then she goes in, and the urologist goes in and grabs. Anybody ever had a stent removed? You're probably shuddering right now. Um, she goes in and grabs the stent, and she pulls it. You can feel it a little bit. She says, "Well, the next pull is going to be really painful." And sure enough, it was the mo- oh, It was. I would rather have passed two more stones than passing that stent. And then she wanted to know if I wanted to take it home with me, and she held it up like that. I didn't take it. So calcium intake is a risk factor, purine-containing foods, oxalates foods, uh, recurrent UTIs, especially if they have recurrent urinary tract infections with an organism called Proteus, Proteus species. That organism tends to alkalinize your urine and precipitate out these crystals. Uh, Gout, people who live on the edge of dehydration are more prone to having kidney stones. Subdural, this accumulation of blood in the subdural space caused by venous bleeding. These are crescent-shaped Hematomas, due to a head injury with latency between the event and symptoms of headache, confusion, stupor, coma, delirium, and paresthesia. So they'll do the, have the injury, and then they're fine, and then they have symptoms develop later. And then subarachnoid, this is a spontaneous arterial bleeding into the subarachnoid space, may result from an aneurysm. Oops, I thought I had an arrow. guess not. There's the aneurysm. Um, symptoms really depend, specific neurological symptoms, depend on the location of the aneurysm. The nonspecific stuff includes headache, stiff neck, photophobia, the headache that's the worst of their life, okay, the classic presentation for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Photophobia, papilledema, the blood in the spinal tap, not only will it be blood in tube one, but be the same amount of blood in tube two, three, and four. Um, So the other symptoms are going to vary depending on the location. This aneurysm is actually in the posterior communicating area, which I'm sure, well maybe you remember. Um, Cranial nerve 3 comes off right there, ocular motor. So if this is impinging on the ocular motor nerve, they're going to have problems with cranial nerve 3. In other words, they won't be able to close their eye. Okay, so I can't really tell you, oh look for these neurological findings. The classic thing is the worst headache of their life, sudden onset. Use the occipital, stiff neck almost looks like meningitis okay um, I saw one interesting case of this once the uh, guy was a lawyer Mm-mm. he was a lawyer um, he was actually coming back from a deposition with a colleague and they were riding on the expressway he was driving he says you know I'm getting this really bad headache and they did medical malpractice as part of their pra- what their law firm did they had had cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage so he knew from other cases that this was a bad thing and he went to the hospital and it saved his life so you never know but he did not one of the risk factors is uh, vascular diseases this is a summary of the different um, hematomas epidural, subdural uh, subarachnoid what the mechanism is the classic thing unconsciousness resolution and then unconsciousness subdural they fall down go boom but they feel okay and then they develop these neurological changes later and then the subarachnoid uh, is the worst headache of their life okay hematological what only thing we're really gonna focus on I think is the leukemias here now I'm gonna go through the major groups here, but on the exam, they usually don't get to a whole lot of detail here. Because how do you really make the diagnosis of whether somebody has AML, ALL, CML, or CLL, or hairy cell, or whatever? You do it based on looking at the the cells in the bone marrow. That's above and beyond primary care. So you're gonna have to know about them in general. So we're just gonna focus on the general stuff. ALL is very common in kids, peak age around four. um, Anemia, bruising, infection. The classic thing here is CNS involvement. ALL loves to go to the brain, loves to go to the central nervous system. You have to treat them there as well. Lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, uh, it says over 70% are cured. It's probably closer to 80% now. Blasts, acute leukemia is greater than 20, well actually 30% blasts in the bone marrow. Normal bone marrow has about 5% blasts or less. You never, ever, 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 ever should see a blast in the peripheral blood. Never. If they tell you here's a CBC peripheral smear and it says 1% blast, that's leukemia Till proven otherwise. It's never a normal cell finding. Okay? Never. So greater than 30% blast, elevated white count, anemia, bone marrow's is for diagnosis. These are all blast cells. Well, That's not, but these are all blasts. And they're blasts because they got these little nucleoli in them, okay? So these are immature, way immature. Early, just past the stem cell. Um, these are all myelobla- or lymphoblasts. Treatment is chemotherapy. They are not gonna ask you specific chemotherapy questions for some of these, except for a couple of them. We'll talk about those because It changes too rapidly okay that goes for the chemotherapies for all the cancers CNS treatment is important it's a must you have one of two options you can either give them intrathecal chemotherapy so take out some spinal fluid and inject some chemotherapy usually we use methotrexate or you can give them brain radiation but acute lymphocytic leukemia has to have the CNS treated it has to Chronic lymphocytic causes unknown increases with age, men more than women, mainly B cells. Classic presentation is recurrent bacterial infections. Boy, I seem to get pneumonia a couple of times a year. I get, always get these sinus infections. They like to get encapsulated organisms, strep pneumo, haemophilus influenza. Clinically, they're usually asymptomatic, some spenomegaly, lymphadenopathy. Has a very slow course. Lymphocytosis, greater than 20% lymphocytes in their, total, in their peripheral blood, diagnostic for um, that, that they're abnormal for, lymph, for uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And then a smudge cell, I really don't, oh, I sort of have a smudge cell. Um, these are just normal lymphocytes, okay? These are some precursor lymphocytes. This is the start of a smudge cell. And a smudge cell is only noted when you make the slide by hand. These cells are very fragile, these lymphocytes. And when you smear them out on the slide, they smudge out. They become smudge cells. And the lab will actually report them. They'll say, we noted smudge cells. Because cells should be able to take that smearing across the slide without being destroyed. So if they mention lymphocytosis or smudge cells, you've got to be thinking CLL. Chemotherapy, fludera Bean, CHOP, once again, I don't wanna focus on uh, the chemotherapy agents here. So CLL, older patients, encapsulated organism infections, splenomegaly, lymphadenopathy. It's really in the same line as we think about lymphomas. CLL's in that same cell line we think about with lymphomas, Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML, now they're switching it over, it's now acute non lymphocytic leukemia or ANLL. Okay. Uh, risk factors radiation, chemo or chemicals, prior chemotherapy, uh, low survival rates even with therapy. We used to use this classification f- called the French American British FAB, we've done away with that now. Used to be M0 to M8, um, don't worry about that anymore. Still shows up on bone marrow reports though. Now we're doing everything by flow cytometry. We're looking at what cell markers are on the cells and determining what type you have. And the reason we do that is because that can be helpful for picking chemotherapy and prognosis. Uh, clinically, fatigue, anorexia, dyspnea, lymphadenopathy, spinal very nonspecific findings. The CBC is gonna be the key here. An AML blasts again, our rods, these are our rods. Right here. They're not going to ask you to identify this on a slide like this, but if they mention our rods, just go right for AML. Not all subtypes of acute myelogenous leukemia have it, but quite a few of them do. Elevated white count, anemia, bone marrow for diagnosis again. Treatment is chemotherapy. You do not need to treat the CNS. Only acute lymphocytic leukemia do you need to treat the CNS. Chronic myelogenous leukemia, CML, this is a myeloproliferative disorder, typically middle-aged. Once again, nonspecific findings. Um, They'll develop this chronic phase, then they'll eventually convert over to this blastic crisis. This one is Philadelphia chromosome positive. So if they talk about that, it's a translocation on the chromosome. I think it's 7 and 21. I hope that's right. Um, But that's positive in CML. Now, I used to tell people if it says Philadelphia chromosome positive, go right for CML. For the most part, that's true, except there's a subgroup of acute lymphocytic leukemias, especially in adults, that can be Philadelphia chromosome positive. And if they're an adult with ALL that's Philadelphia chromosome positive, that's a very poor prognostic indicator. They're not going to do well. But forsaken the exam, they talk about Philadelphia chromosome, go right for CML. The nice thing about CML that I always liked is because if I ever wanted to teach people how to look at the different cell types that there are, they're all in CML patients. I mean, there's blasts in here, there's metamyelocytes, there's myelocytes, there's bands, there's everything, there's segs, there's everything in these things. So they have all the cell lines. Now, they can have what looks like a left shift, they can have an elevated white count. it can look like an infection. One of the things they may mention is this leukocyte alkaline phosphatase, or LAP. Stands for leukocyte alkaline phosphatase test. This is low in chronic myelogenous leukemia. There's another condition called a leukomoid reaction that you see in infections. There it's high. Because looking at the smear, you can't necessarily tell the difference. Is this a leukomoid reaction or is this a CML patient? And the thing that can help you would be the LAP score. It's low in CML and it's normal or high, actually high in leukemoid reaction. Hairy cell leukemia, this is just one of my personal favorites. It's still, it's one of the five common leukemias. More common in males, peak age around 55, once again, frequent infections. They get this pancytopenia and what they have is these long hair-like projections off these lymphocytes. These are usually B lymphocytes, okay? Um, Bone marrow shows these hairy cells. And treatment is 2-chlorodeoxyadenosine or 2-CDA. Before we had this chemotherapy agent, these patients did fine. They just smolder along. They're neutropenic, they're anemic, but they do okay. If they die, they usually die of an overwhelming infection they can't fight off. 2-CDA came along and when it first came out, I was working oncology and like in a six month period, I think I saw everybody with hairy cell leukemia in Western Michigan came to get treated because it had a 80% cure rate if you survived the chemotherapy. Because the chemotherapy caused severe neutropenia. Um, I actually had a husband and wife both had hairy cell leukemia. They both came in for chemotherapy at the same time. He left, she didn't. She died of an overwhelming infection because we made her so neutropenic. So, um, But when you make it through it, it's pretty good. So there's the major leukemias look for the blasts for acute leukemias greater than 30 percent that they'll mention the other one that's kind of in the cancer area for hematology is multiple myeloma this is the plasma cell uh, abnormality remember plasma cells are the uh, cells that make immunoglobulins Okay, it's part of your humoral immune system so you get monoclonal production of IgG, IgA, IgE, D, E or monoclonal light chains. If you make monoclonal light chains, these are called bence jones proteins, they do not show up in the blood, they show up in the urine. So if you have somebody with multiple myeloma, the classic test of choice is a serum protein electrophoresis to look for these bands. If that's negative and you're going, I'm convinced they got multiple myeloma, then you have to do a urine protein electrophoresis. And we'll talk about that in a second. Risk increases with age, men more than women, African American increased risk, radiation exposure, chemo or chemical exposure. Fatigue, weakness, weight loss, very nonspecific findings. Anemia, they'll show this rouleau because of these proteins they're making too much of, it makes the red cells stick together and they start to stack like coins. So here's the rouleau, okay. Uh, because of the Rouleau, the coins, the cells stack together, they fall out, precipitate out faster. So their SED rate's elevated. In, these are all plasma cells because they've got this lightish, dark blue, dark chromatin in their nucleus, dark uh, bluish cytoplasm except for this zone of clearing, that's a plasma cell. So increase in plasma cells greater than 10% in the bone marrow. Usually you see just a few percent in the bone marrow plasma cells. Their total serum protein on their chemistry profile will be elevated. Remember, that total serum protein is measuring albumin and immunoglobulins. So if you want, you can take the albumin that you get, subtract that from the total and say, wow, their immunoglobulin level is sky-high. Monoclonal peak. So here's a normal protein electrophoresis, high albumin, alpha-1, alpha-2, beta chain, and then gamma chain, where all the immunoglobulins are. Normally, you've got a nice, smooth distribution of immunoglobulins. Not with multiple myeloma. Still have albumin, alpha-1, alpha-2, beta. But here's that spike of that one IgG immunoglobulin or IgG or IgD or whatever. That one immunoglobulin they're making mass amounts of. So that's the monoclonal spike on serum protein electrophoresis in a patient with multiple myeloma because of this disease they can have worsening of their renal function and elevated calcium levels not so much as a diagnostic tool but to monitor their response to therapy they'll show these on um, x-ray show up these classic punched out lesions in the skull the ribs the spine the pelvis this is it right here okay if they show you a lateral skull film like this it's for one of two reasons it's either this or some type of skull fracture okay if they show you an x-ray through the patient with their mouth wide open, what are they looking for? Injury. Either C1 or C2 injury. Okay, So just by knowing what film they're shooting and what they give you, because they're not going to give you tons of them. Okay? Same thing with CT scans. They can't give you the whole CT scan, all 30-some cuts. They can only give you one. Okay? They don't have enough space on the exam. Uh, Compression fractures are very common later in the course. These bones, their bones become very brittle, very soft. Um, I had a, a little old lady once with multiple myeloma. She rolled over in bed and broke her arm. She rolled on it and snapped it. Treatment is supportive. Chemotherapy, once again, don't worry about it. These, once again, are an increased risk of bacterial infections with encapsulated organisms because you're really to kill off encapsulated organisms you need a really good humoral along with cellular immune system and these people don't have the humoral system the immunoglobulins they make don't work very well okay ENT acute otitis media I would imagine there'll be a question or two on an ear infection okay bacterial infection in the mucosally lined air containing spaces in the temporal bone usually precipitated by a viral upper respiratory tract infection most common pathogens here are listed are bacterial. What's the most common pathogen overall? Viral. Virus is by far are the most common cause of acute media, but that's not a fun question to ask because what's the treatment? Pain control. That's not a fun question to ask. That doesn't assess anything. We're going to ask about bacteria because then it's antibiotics. So, strep pneumo, haemophilus influenza, strep pyogenes, moraxella catarrhalis, all can lead to otitis media. Those are the same organisms that cause sinus infections. More common in infants and children's, risk factors, daycare attendance, sibling with acute otitis, uh, parental smoking, uh, bottle drinking. Uh, the TM will be red. I don't think anybody would say that this is not a bulging red TM. Looks like it's gonna pop any minute. Uh, Decreased mobility, fever, decreased hearing. If there's drainage, think that the TM's ruptured. If you, they talk, they could show you a picture like this or they could describe it. If you see little bullae or vesicles on the tympanic membrane, it could still be otitis, but it's probably mycoplasma infection. And the treatment will be a little bit different. Be a macrolide like erythromycin or azithromycin. Mastoid tenderness, uh, labs, tympanocentesis, um, nobody does this, okay? Can you imagine? It's hard enough to get the otoscope in the kid's ear to look, much less now tell them I want to take this needle and stick it in your ear. Okay. I think the least your worries would be the kid holding still. It's going to be mom going, what are you doing? Okay. Well, I'm trying to do a tympanocentesis and brain biopsy. I'm ruling out mad cow. Okay. So we don't do tympanocentesis. Treatment, still amoxicillin, still the drug of choice. Amoxicillin, amoxicillin, amoxicillin. What's the side effect of amoxicillin besides rash? Hershey squirts. Diarrhea. Okay. All of them can do that. Uh, Rithromycin, that's the one you want to use if you're worried about mycoplasma. Um, The um, penicillins and the cephalosporins are not great coverage for the atypicals, like mycoplasma. Pain control, don't forget about that. Chronic treatment, sulfamethoxazole or amoxicillin. Chronic otitis, this is due to recurrent acute otitis media, uh, perforation is usually present. The organisms change. Pseudomonas aeruginosa, proteus, and staph aureus. Purulent, thick, nasty-looking discharge from the ear. Conductive hearing loss. Antibiotic here has got to cover the pseudomonases. So the fluoroquinolones, like Cipro, um, which is great because it comes in a drop form. Surgery may be needed. Uh, if you need to use uh, oral uh, antibiotics or even if you're gonna use IV, make sure you use something that covers Pseudomonas. Mastoiditis, this is, uh, follows inadequately treated acute otitis media, auricular pain, erythema, fever. Um, I don't think if they showed you a picture of this that you would go, oh, that looks normal, okay? So this is all the mastoid air cells behind this little guy's ear that are all getting destroyed. This one needs IV antibiotics, broad spectrum. Uh, Timentin is an anti-pseudomonal penicillin, ticarcillin, plus genomycin or any aminoglycoside. Genomycin, tobramycin. Actually, tobramycin's a little bit better against pseudomonas than genomycin. Just a little. Treatment, long period of time, three to four weeks. Uh, May need surgical drainage and then the uh, side effects here. But just watch for the kid in the history. They tell you he had acute otitis media and is now having some pain and erythema and tenderness behind his ear. Make sure you think about mastoid. Otitis externa, this is swimmer's ear or mechanical trauma. Um, Actually, what's the most common cause of otitis externa? People putting crap in their ears. Okay, bobby pins, pencils, ink pins, okay. Only thing you should stick in your ear is what? Elbow. Okay, um, I, <laughs> another funny one. I had a colleague who, uh, that I worked with. She was a great PA I worked with. Her husband was a different story though. He was a nutcase. Um, one time evidently at home, he had just taken a shower and he put a Q-tip in each ear and he's dancing around the house until he fell down. He punctured both eardrums. I said, what did you do? She says, I sat there and I laughed at him because he was such a moron. But that's so, don't put things in your ears. Uh, common in diabetes, if it is, then it's malignant otitis externa. The, op, the drugs, or the bugs here are pseudomonas, proteus, fungi. Aspergillus, typically if it's one of the weird fungi, it's uh, immunocompromised host. Uh, they'll have ear pain, itching, perulent discharge, erythema, the, you won't even be able to see the TM. Don't fall for that one on the exam either, okay? Op, uh, uh, otoscopic exam reveals a impacted canal. TM cannot be visualized. Don't pick acute otitis media as the answer. How could it be? You didn't see the TM, okay? So don't, uh, don't fall for that one. Periorricular lymphadenopathy. Uh, otic aminoglycosides, uh, uh, corticosteroids, ear wicks, using it to get the drugs in, and maybe even some oral qu- uh, quinolones. The fluoroquinolones are great uh, for pseudomonas. Acute sinusitis, uh, this is obstruction uh, in filling a fluid in the sinuses, accumulation of mucous secretions. This is the cold that lasts more than 10 days. So watch for that in the scenario. Person who presents with cold-like symptoms, they've had it for two weeks. Pathogens, strep pneumo, haemophilus, Staph aureus, uh, Myraxella cateralis, viruses, a fungal, once again, rhizopus, mucor, and aspergillus, immunocompromised. I used to see, a, not a fair amount, a couple of cases every year or so of a rhizopus or mucor in immunocompromised cancer patients I took care of. And that's one you don't want to see, especially mucor. It's a slime mold, it's very sticky, and it's very hard to get rid of. Pain and pressure over the sinuses, discolored nasal discharge. Doesn't always have to have discharge. Remember the sinuses, frontal uh, maxillary sinuses drain through these little ostea into the nose. If those ostea are plugged, there'll be no nasal drainage. Uh, fever, malaise, tenderness to palpation, uh, may even not uh, transilluminate. Uh, air fluid levels, thick mucosa. CT scan's probably the test of choice now. Here's just a regular film showing you the air fluid levels here. In the sinuses and then here's a CT scan Um, there's the eyeball Um, ethmoid sinuses maxillary sinuses this is normal and here they are you can see all the sinusitis all this fluid in this maxillary and there's even some in the ethmoid so the test of choice now is uh, CT of the sinuses treatment um, I put on here oral decongestants and nasal decongestants though the latest stuff out now says don't bother Antibiotics are the drug, the, test, the treatment of choice here. Amoxicillin, Bactrim, Cephalosporins, same basic treatments you're using to treat ear infections, you're using to treat sinus infections. Drain the sinus only if they're not resolving. Uh, there are some complications, osteomyelitis, cavernous sinus thrombosis, orbital cellulitis that can occur. Uh, the worst thing I ever saw is I saw a little girl who had an infection in her um, throat. She developed a sinusitis and then developed a meningitis from it it just kept working its way back. Chronic sinusitis uh, lasting two to three months, chronic nasal congestion, cough, fever is rare. The big thing here to remember is it's more anaerobic. So your drugs are going to change. Clinically it looks the same as acute sinusitis, CT scan. Treat the same as acute sinusitis because the treatment for acute sinusitis, amoxicillin and stuff, work for anaerobes as well. Remember a foreign body, okay? If they give you a scenario, young kid, little kid, purulent drainage out of one nostril, foreign body tell proven otherwise, okay? Because most of the ostia are back far enough for the sinuses that they'll get purulent drainage out of both sides. But if you see just one, Johnny probably shoves something up his nose. It's never Janie. Little girls don't shove things up their nose, little boys do. They wanna see how many soldiers they can get up in their nose, or how many Cheerios. Okay, infectious diseases. We're going to talk about the bizarre and esoteric ones, not the common ones, like some of the stuff we've been talking about. This is amoebic dysentery. This is entamoeba histolytica, uh, fecal oral transmission, abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea. Bloody diarrhea is important here. Giardia, which we're going to talk about next, is non-bloody. Entamoeba is bloody. Also can lead to hepatic infection or abscesses. It's the most common parasite to cause liver abscesses is Entamoeba histolytica. Hepatomegaly, localized tenderness. You can do antigen testing or PCR testing. and parasite, this is looking for the parasite in the stool. Treatment is metronidazole. If you want to remember, there's three common parasites you're going to have to treat on the exam. Okay? Entamoeba histolytica is one of them. Giardia and trick. The three most common parasite infections. And guess what? They're all treated with metronidazole. So metronidazole gets GET, G for giardia, E for entamoeba, T for trichomonas. Okay? So as antiparasitic drugs go, that's the one you want to remember. The other one, if you want to remember one other antiparasitic drug, it's Mebendazole. When in doubt, if it doesn't, if it's not one of those three, try mebendazole. It cures just about everything else, except for uh, malaria. Giardia. This is Giardia. Used to be Giardia lamblia. Now it's Giardia duodenalis. It changes the name every other week, it seems. This is contaminated water. Classic scenario is the out, person out camping. You know, they're out camping in the mountains. Ooh, crystal clear water. This looks great. Let's take a drink. What they don't see is the beaver and the bear upstream using the river as their bathroom and the little giardia that they carry swimming downstream to you. Oral fecal transmission, foul smelling, non-bloody. There's a malabsorption problem here. You guys remember what malabsorption stool smells like? Remember what it looks like? It's the floaters. Okay? It's the foul, foul, foul. These people have flatulence with malabsorption like you wouldn't believe. Okay? So that's the classic malabsorption type of stool. Oven parasite serology testing. Here's our little critter. I've got another photograph somewhere. It looks like it's smiling at you. It's really cute. Um, Normal WBCs, negative fecal WBCs. This organism does not invade the GI tract, the tissues. So you don't get an inflammatory response. You do with entamoeba you do get positive fecal WBCs, but with Giardia, you don't. And then treatment again is metronidazole. Hookworms, uh, this is Nicator americanus, it's a nematode, usually Southeast United States. This organism, it's on the list now actually, but it's just cool, because this one penetrates intact skin. There's very few organisms that penetrate intact skin. Okay? Syphilis is one, and so's is uh, Nicator americanus, or the hookworms. So it penetrates the skin, it migrates to the lungs, you cough it up, and then you swallow it, and that's how it gets in your GI tract. Is that not the coolest life cycle ever? You've got to appreciate the simplicity behind all that. Okay, I'm going to get in, cough you up, and then I'm going to swallow you, and there the bug goes. Okay. Depends on where they are in the stage. If it's skin penetration, you get this ground itch. If they're in the lungs, this dry cough with blood-tinged sputum, and in the GI tract, they get diarrhea and some abdominal pain, and there's the little hookworms. Um, It's, uh, you can actually see the organism underneath the surface of the skin, and it itches like crazy because you're reacting to it, and then that'll disappear. That's the ground itch. Um, They'll develop an iron deficiency anemia it can be. The stools can be heme-positive. Oven parasites, again, for diagnosis, looking for these critters okay Uh, treatment here's the one albendazole or mebendazole so if it's not metronidazole it's mebendazole as your drug of choice Ascaris lumbarcoides this is a roundworm resides in the small intestine Um, oral egg ingestion contaminated soil little kids get this one they're playing in the sandbox eating dirt okay then mom freaks out when Johnny passes this in their stool okay first they think Johnny ate the worm sorry, but it's not going to pass through your colon and stomach that intact. Uh, fever, cough, GI distension, uh, ova and parasite again, though you usually don't need to look for the ova. You can usually see the parasite. Okay? Um, eosinophilia. Oh, that reminds me. For parasite infections, whenever you see eosinophilia, you always think, oh, they have a parasite infection. For the most part, that's true, but it has to be an invasive parasite. Giardia does not cause an eosinophilia. Okay, it doesn't invade the tissues. Trichinella does. You get that from eating undercooked pork. That invades the muscles. There you get an eosinophilia. And treatment again, abendazole or mebendazole. Malaria, uh, they almost give this away if they ask questions because of the travel history. Into endemic areas, transmitted by the mosquito, episodes of fevers, chills, sweating, myalgias. Diagnose it by looking for the parasite in the blood. The only reason I put the life cycle up here is to remind me to tell you one thing. Okay, we'll move on to the next slide. Oh, What's the one thing, right? Malaria has two separate locations for its life cycle. It has part of its cycle outside the erythrocyte, the red cell, that's in the liver, and it has part of its cycle that's in the red cell. Some drugs only work in some cycles. So if you treat them for the malaria and it only kills the red cell, cycle eventually the liver cells are going to rupture and you're going to reinfect so you have to make sure you use either a single drug or multiple drugs that work in both areas liver cells the liver cells and the red blood cells otherwise they're just going to be recycling so there's four species here uh, vivax falciparum, or uh, plasmodium vivax plus plasmodium malariae, ovale and falciparum. The fever patterns can help, though it's not consistent. Uh, hemo- the most common cause of hemolytic anemia in the world is malaria. And here they are, here's the little ring forms. We do thick and thin smears. Thick smear is a screening tool, thin smears to make the diagnosis. There's some tests you can do, uh, some serology testing you can do for some of the malaria species, but for most of them it's still diagnosing them based on looking at the blood smears. Treatment, it varies. Even the CDC says, you got somebody with malaria? Look at our website. Because you gotta base it on where they traveled and what the resistance patterns are in that part of the world. So they really can't ask you a question on the exam other than to say chloroquine would be the correct answer. Because it really depends on where your person traveled. And I think that's above and beyond for you to know every area of the world what the treatment patterns are for malaria. I think in doubt, if you know that there's chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are the drugs of choice, I think you're okay for the exam. Penworms, Enterobius vermicularis, uh, humans are the only host, the adult worm inhabits the cecum, the female migrates to the anus to lay her eggs, and then what do little kids do? Scratch. Scratch their butt, then what do they do? Uh, put their hands in their mouth. So they keep auto-infecting themselves. Kids are dirty, okay? Dirty little animals. Okay. Uh, I can say that I still have an 11-year-old who's a dirty little animal. Um, I, don't know how you, I don't know how a kid can get so dirty sitting in the house. Um, so the eggs hatch and they migrate out to the cecum. Perianal itching at night is the most common symptoms. And these kids will scratch at night. Okay. Restless sleep, no eosinophilia. These aren't tissue invasive. Scotch tape test, Yes. Take Johnny's little butt, once again, little girls don't get this, little boys do. Take little scotch tape, you put it over their anus, you put it on a slide, and you look for these parasites. Please don't use frosted scotch tape. I used to be a med tech, I used to have to read these, used to drive me nuts, people would use frosted scotch tape. How am I supposed to see through the frosted scotch tape of the microscope, okay? The other thing, if you're collecting this, stand off to the side. Sometimes when you stimulate these little kids' rectums with the tape, they have a bowel movement. So unless you want to get pooped on. And then treatment, mibendazole. So I think you're seeing the pattern here. If it's Giardia, Entamoeba, or Trick, give them metronidazole. Everybody else gets mibendazole. So you really only have to know two parasite drugs for the entire exam. I'm not going to spend any time talking about the tapeworms, so I put this slide in there. You can look at it at your leisure. Um, One thing I do want to point out uh, these are all invasive, so they all do cause eosinophilia. The other caveat is that latum, which you get from fish tapeworm, does lead to a vitamin B12 deficiency. It can. Okay? Um, so hopefully, uh, anybody eating any seafood while they were here in Seattle? No? Really? Uh, hopefully you didn't come down uh, with the latum. Actually, you're more likely to come down with para-hemoly- um, vibrio parahemolyticus. Uh, as a cause Uh, you get that from eating uh, uh, raw shellfish like uh, oysters and uh, shrimp but if you if you ate it yesterday you'll know tomorrow sometime you'll make it home on the plane if you're not sick yet what's the one um, infectious diarrhea cause that gets you uh, from the time of inoculation to diarrhea the fastest it's six hours staph aureus and where do you get that one from? Potato salad, okay? All the other ones that cause infectious diarrhea usually are 12 to 24 hours, closer to 24. Toxoplasmosis, this is due to toxoplasma gondii, it's a protozoan, cats are the host. Uh, infection results from either ingestion of cysts in raw or undercooked meat or from cat feces. Not, it's not eating cat, it comes from pork. Uh, congenital to transmission can infect the fetus. Most of these patients are asymptomatic. You're probably, there's probably what, 30 people in here? Probably a third of you have a positive titer detoxoplasmosis. Anybody in here got a cat? You're probably guaranteed to be positive, okay? I have two cats, I'm positive. We all get exposed to this, but nothing ever happens to us because we're able to stay in check with it. It's when we become immunocompromised that it becomes more of a disease. Fever, malaise, headache, lymphadenopathy, stiff neck, sore throat. You can look for the organism, you can do serology. CT scans shows these ring-enhancing lesions with contrast. There's only two things, really, especially in immunocompromised host you worry about that show CT ring-enhancing lesions with contrast. One's toxo, the other's lymphoma. Toxo is usually multiple lesions. Lymphoma is typically one lesion. Treatment, um, proper cooking of meat, avoiding the cat. Don't have to get rid of the cat. Just avoid the cat litter. And then um, pyrimethamine, folinic acid, uh, sulfadiazine, or clindamycin. The folinic acid is not to kill the organism. The folinic acid is for you. okay? Because these drugs work by inhibiting uh, folate metabolism, which the organism needs. So that's what kills the organism. We kind of need folate too. But we can take folinic acid and use it in our cycle for folate metabolism. The organism can't. So that's why the folinic acid, it's for us, the person getting the drug, not the killing the organism. Cryptococcus, uh, the most common cause of fungal meningitis, the organism is cryptococcus neoformans, uh, Usually immunocompromised hosts, steroids, Hodgkin's, HIV, present just like any other meningitis, headache, mental status changes, uh, stiff neck CSF, now we didn't do in neurology the meningitis, that was another one, but I wanna quickly go over something here. In bacterial infections of the meninges, or bacterial meningitis, the white count will be elevated. In viral meningitis, the white count will be elevated. And fungal infections meningitis, the white count will be elevated. It's the type of cell that's important. In bacterial, it's neutrophils, in viral, it's monocyte or lymphocytes or monocytes and in um, fungal it's lymphocytes okay so the type of cell is what's important total protein is elevated in the CSF levels in bacterial viral and fungal meningitis very nonspecific doesn't help you a bit okay glucose is a different story okay glucose will be decreased in bacterial normal and viral, and it'll be decreased in fungal. Now, everybody, whenever I ask, why does this bacterial have decreased glucose, Well, the bacteria using the glucose? Eh, it's not such so true. But if that's how you can remember it, more power, that's great, just remember it, okay? The other caveat with the glucose in the CSF is you have to correlate it to the serum glucose level, okay? Normal glucose in the CSF is around a two-thirds of your blood sugar value. So normal CNS is around 60 to 70, because we're normally around 60 to 100, okay? So if I have a diabetic patient who's got a blood sugar of 600, well, let's not make them that high, 300, and their glucose in their CSF, I think they have meningitis, is 90. I'm going, wow, that's a normal glucose in the CSF. Normal for you and me, would not with diabetes, but for that diabetic person, that's too low. It should have been closer to 200. So you have to interpret that glucose in relationship to the serum. Um, treatment India Ink Prep, that's what this is, looking at these little uh, organisms inside. Uh, treatment is amphotericin or fluconazole. Histoplasmosis, this is a dimorphic fungi. Dimorphic fungi are organisms that are yeasts in your body, they're molds outside of the body. So we inhale it as a mold spore and in our body it becomes a yeast. These are seen in the Mississippi, Ohio River Valley. Anybody from Iowa? If you're close to the Mississippi border, river, um, you're probably histo skin test positive. Um, I lived there for a few years to go to school. I'm skin test positive. Related to bird droppings, bad exposure, I haven't seen this very often in my career, but one I saw, um, the guy was uh, helping clean out an old building, and they were aerosolizing all these birds that had been living in there, pooping on the floor, and they were sweeping up all the bird poop. He did not want to wear his oral uh, airway protector device because it was too hot, so he inhaled a whole bunch of histospores and developed pneumonia. So most patients are asymptomatic, though they can get respiratory illness. May become disseminated uh, in leukemia, lymphoma patients. Here's the organism. Uh, bone marrow can be positive. You're an antigen test, you can do skin tests. Chest x-ray will show the pneumonia. And treatment is the best treatment is Amphotericin B, but the azole's work as well. So, for histo, it's exposure to the spores, usually from bat droppings or bird droppings, usually in the Mississippi or Ohio River Valley. Coccidiomycosis. this is another dimorphic, southern, United, southern California to Texas. This is the San Joaquin Valley fever organism. Coccidiomycoses, coccidioides imidus. Pulmonary symptoms, arthralgias, you can culture it. Remember, anything infectious, the test of choice is culture. You can do serology testing and treatment again is the azoles or amphotericin. Now, this is looking at all of the more common funguses: uh, systemics, the blasto, coccidioides, candida, crypto, and aspergillus. Trying to summarize it for you on one slide. I'm not going to go through this. This was more information only uh, for you. And then some whoops. And then some pictures of what they look like uh, in the body. I doubt they would show you any of these. About the only one I think would be fair game for them to show you would be uh, Canada albicans uh, as a wet mount or something like that. I think the rest of these, I mean, I know people who I've worked with as med techs in microbiology who had a heck of a time diagnosing these. Okay, our last section is psychiatry. Now, I'm not gonna do all of psych. I'm only gonna focus on two areas. One is personality disorders and one is schizophrenia and for personality, there's a lot of stuff on the slides. I'm not gonna go over all of it. It's more there for some information for you. I'm gonna hit some key things. Now, how do we diagnose psychiatric disorders? What do we use? The DSM-4R, okay? And there are humongous criteria for diagnosing psychiatric disorders. They have to be this, but not this, and have this, and not this, and have this, and have three of these, and two of those, and four of those, and this has to occur. They can't do that on the exam. It would be too long of a question. So we're going to talk about buzz things and key things to look for to help you think about some of these certain disorders. So for personality, we divide these into different clusters. Cluster A, B, and C. We're going to go through each one. Cluster A is the typical social detachment with unusual behaviors. They're the weird patients. The weird symptoms, the odd or eccentric patients. Cluster B is drama, wild symptoms, dramatic, emotional, erratic, impulsive, and then cluster C is anxiety or fearful patients. Cluster A, the first one is paranoid personality disorder. Uh, what I'm going to do is focus on just, where'd it go, on this area is up here, the signs and symptoms, because that's going to be the key. Don't worry about this differential diagnosis or experience, illness behaviors or experiences, it, Somewhat helpful, but I want to focus up here. So these paranoid are very distrustful. They're very suspicious of others. Okay, Unforgiving of enemy or friends, fear and confiding in others, perceived threats everywhere. They're socially isolated and avoid intimacy. So the key thing here is the distrust and the suspicion. The schizoid personality disorder, they're detached with limited emotional expression. Any of these can have psychotic episodes with them. Okay, Hallucinations and things like that these have are indifferent little interest in sex they work alone no close friends uh, may maintain an important relationship limited emotional expression Um, remember uh, Milton office space part of the time early on in the movie I think he's a little more schizoid personality you know my my stapler somebody took my stapler I need cake I didn't get any cake last time he starts to express himself a little bit towards the end of the movie though when he burns the building down schizotypical uh, cognitive, perceptual, behavioral, eccentricities, uh, discomfort, close relationships, embrace unusual beliefs to the ex- that exceeds the norm. It's not so, and I'm not making any judgments here, uh, these are the people who would believe in ESP, psychics, things like that. Okay? It's not so extreme that they're, visually, they're hallucinating or seeing, but they'll have these weird beliefs or ideas. Okay, now you may believe in ESP and all that. Stuff. That's great. I don't think you're schizotypical. But that's the classic presentation for this person. Antisocial, total disregard for others, violent behaviors. The other key thing we need to mention here is they've got to be 18 years old. If they're under 18, it's conduct disorder. Most of these patients are going to end up in prison. This is the one who liked to hurt little animals when they were little kids. You know, ooh, I'm going to shoot my gun at the puppy and the kitty. okay. That's the antisocial personality. Total lack of remorse, okay? They don't care about anything. Total disregard, a lot of fighting in school, poor grades, uh, sexually promiscuous, uh, underhanded, very, uh, the typical antisocial. Borderline personality, despair, unstable affect, rage. Classically watch for this where one minute they're, oh, this is great, the next minute, this is awful, okay? Um, despair unstable often um, confused with mood disorders or bipolar Uh, relationship instability this empty feeling nothing is good nothing in their life is wonderful it's kinda I always think of uh, almost in the lines of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh I don't think when he was writing that he was thinking that Eeyore should be borderline though histrionic this is the one you don't want as a patient okay everything is just out there oh my gosh This is the worst pain in my big toe I've ever had in the world. You have to see me. Oh, my God, this is awful. Um, They're always the center of attention, influenced easily. This is the one as a patient. They come in and say, well, I think it's due to this. And you say, well, I think it's, you know, I think you're right. I think it's due to, I mean, you can change their mind like nothing. Um, Exaggerated emotions. um, Overly concerned about physical appearance. These people are maybe perceived as vain. Is probably the classic word that's used for these people. Uh, the narcissistic personalities the need for praise and admiration uh, entitled conceited arrogant lack of empathy um, self-importance they're the most important thing since post-it notes okay everything revolves around them Uh, dependent personality this is cluster C uh, the need to be taken care of reassurance reliance on others Uh, they won't initiate any of this they're very submissive Uh, This is the person who always volunteers. We've all worked with somebody like this. They volunteer to take that other shift that nobody wants. Okay, Nobody will do it. I'll do it. It's okay. I'll do it. It's fine. That's the dependent personality. It's because that's the way they can feel like they're part of the group then, part of the team. They'll take those unpleasant tasks. They'll agree with others even when they're wrong. And then avoidant personality. They desire relationships but avoid them. Have these feelings of inadequacy, very sensitive to criticism, fear, rejection, humiliation, um, social inhibition. They'll do anything they can to avoid relationships. Oh, the other one here to watch, uh, distinguish this from the social phobias, okay? And usually the difference is gonna be having panic attacks. It's gonna be the difference. Obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Uh, They're perfectionists, require a great deal of order and control. How do you separate this from obsessive compulsive disorder? Obsessive compulsive disorder people know that touching and checking the lock on the door 52 times before they leave doesn't make any sense. Washing their hands 4,000 times doesn't make any sense. They know that, they just can't stop it. Obsessive compulsive personality disorders think that's normal. They think their obsessions and their compulsions are normal. Obsessive-compulsive disorder patients know it's abnormal. I think we all have a little OCD in us. That's why we're in medicine. Some of us, like me, have a little more than others. When I was a kid, I used to have to make sure that all the books on my bookshelf went from tallest to smallest and that the the book edge binder was right at the edge of the bookshelf. And my older brother, who's 11 years older than me, used to drive me crazy by coming into my room and pushing every so many books in. And then he would come out and say, oh, your bookshelf. And I'd have to run right, I couldn't sit there. And he would do it right in the middle. I'd be watching a game or something. And it'd be like the the last inning, somebody's up to bat. He'd go, I don't think the book's on your shelf. And I couldn't stay and watch the game. I had to go check the bookshelf. And half the time, he hadn't touched anything. And then everybody would laugh, ha, 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 okay? Maybe that's why I've got so many issues. Um, but that's the difference between obsessive compulsive personality disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. Treatment. This is the one area where pharmacotherapeutics, while being helpful, the psychotherapies are much more important. You know, depression. Sure, group therapy and individual therapy is helpful, but the drugs really are probably the most benefit. For personality disorders, the drugs are really only used to treat some of the signs and symptoms. The True focus of treatment here is either psychodynamic psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapies. So the therapies are the treatment of choice here. Medications can help alleviate conditions related to, but they're not curative. So if they're depressed, the antidepressants, anticonvulsants can help with impulsive and aggressive behaviors. The antipsychotics for borderline or schizotypicals, anti-anxiety, so the drugs are there just to treat the symptoms. If they're asking you how would you treat the personality disorder, it's the behavioral therapies. So here they are all summarizing in one table for you, taking all the stuff, I probably could have just went to this one slide, but all the A's, the B's, and the C's. If you know the stuff that's on this slide for the exam, forget all the other slides, you're golden for the exam, okay? The psychoses, it's really based on how long they've had the signs and symptoms. Schizophrenia, at least six months. Schizophreniform, one to six months. Schizoaffective, they're schizophrenic plus depression. Delusional could be a bunch of different things, and then brief psychotic is one to 30 days. It's all about the timing. What kind of symptoms are they gonna get? Well, schizophrenia, fairly common. Some risk factors there. But the symptoms, the criteria, six months of illness, acute phase symptoms, auditory hallucinations, bizarre delusions, or two or more of the following. The thing I tell people for the exam, if they start talking about hallucinations, schizophrenia's gotta be up there on your list. Okay, and it's really gonna depend on how long they've had the symptoms. Okay? Other criteria, the other classy criteria for all of these, it can't be due to a substance abuse or medical condition. Here's the different hallucinations visual, auditory, olfactory, tactile, somatic. Um, I guess give you some descriptions there. I don't want to go through each one of these. Same thing with the delusions, the different types of delusions they can have. The different subtypes, you can be paranoid, schizophrenic, disorganized, catatonic. Remember One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, the movie? With Jack. Okay? Indian Chief, that was a catatonic schizophrenia. Treatment, antipsychotics are the treatment of choice here. First generation and second generation. First generations are not the first line drug anymore, the second generation drugs are the first generations aren't because of the extra pyramidal symptoms the side effects are too great of the second generations they're all pretty good drugs except for uh, clazepine the possible agranulocytosis so even though it's a second generation it's a second-line drug Uh, most people don't like it sure my psychosis is under control but I don't have any white cells left risperidone we talked about uh, under um, hyperprolactinemia it elevates your prolactin level There is a condition called neuroleptic malignant syndrome that's seen with the first generation antipsychotics only. They present with hyperthermia. I'm talking about temperatures 105, 106, 107. (laughs) Rigidity, confusion, diaphoresis, elevated CPK, leukocytosis. What else does this sound like? Overwhelming sepsis. So the key in the question is going to be, are they on a first generation antipsychotic? And if they're not, don't pick this. Ooh, I think they're trying to get me to think about neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Not if they don't mention an antipsychotic drug in the question. So if they put one of those first generations in there, you've gotta think about this. Okay, um, a couple of things just to finish up here. I think, uh, what time is it, 11 o'clock here? So we got done a little early. Uh, a couple of things that always come up about getting ready for the exam that I didn't, I didn't talk about at the beginning because I didn't know how much time I was gonna have. Um, Yes, this is an advertisement for the Kaplan Board Review course. I teach that as well. I'm the one who in your journal does the one little article, the little half-page thing with a sample questionnaire getting you ready for boards. Um, Kaplan now has two options now to help you get ready for board exams. We have a live course and we have an on-demand course. The live course is me listening to me do this. Uh, we do it three hours a night for nine days. Uh, the reason we don't do it all eight hours for four days is because um, how many of you are still paying attention right now? And we've only been here. Oh, you! Oh, thank you! Oh, thank everybody raising their hand. Yeah, great. Whatever. Lie through your teeth. Um, the reason we don't do eight-hour blocks of time, and I used to, I used to do a live course with eight hours, uh, is because you can't maintain concentration that long. Some of you are sitting in here, and all of a sudden you're going squirrel. Okay, that's normal. Okay, that's normal. So we break it up into three hour blocks, an hour and a half, take a break, hour and a half. And we hit it fast and we hit it quick. The other thing, so that's the live course, and I'm doing another one I think in August. The other thing that's just coming out is I recorded the whole thing, it's not a recording of a course. I did individual recordings, so you don't get all the other extraneous stuff in it from some other course where everybody, you know, I'm making a joke about something. Going, what is he joking about? That doesn't make because you didn't get the rest of the content. Um, this is just a straight, focused. It's all the content in about 20 hours. You can actually do it in 15. Kaplan has this system where you can crank up the speed one and a half times faster. I don't sound like a chipmunk, uh, but you can do it even quicker. With that course comes the whole lectures. It's good for, I think, a year. Don't quote me on this, but I think it's good for a year, so you can watch it over and over and over again. It comes with the Q-Bank Questions, which is a whole new Q-Bank of 1,200 1, questions written by uh, Chris Bruce. She's a PA from DeSales, now at Penn State. Um, I worked with her on the PacRat exam a number of years ago. Great test item writer. Um, you get the course, you get that, and you get the huge syllabus. So it's all there for you in one sum. I think what they did last year for both co- the live course is they gave, if you're a member of the Society of Dermatological PAs, you get $100 off the course. I think they're still doing that. I was going to check uh, when I, before I came here, but I was in uh, St. Louis before this and I didn't get a chance to call them. Uh, but I, they did it. I, w- I can talk them. in. I guarantee they'll do it because I can talk them into it because they're real big about promoting this with certain groups and things. So that's available. For getting ready for the test, if you're getting ready to recertify, I really recommend if you're that anxious, like some of you seem to be, start it in the fifth year, take it a year early. I know, I talked to somebody earlier, well if I do it in my normal year, that means I won't, and I pass, I won't have to do it for another ten years. Well if you fail, then what? So I know, I'm in the same boat, I can take it a year, I'm going to take it a year early even though I could wait. Um, I'm supposed to recertify in 14, I'm gonna recertify in t- 13. You go, oh, why? you know what pressure that is? If I don't pass, okay? So take it, give yourself as many options as you can. I usually recommend you take at least 30 days prior to the exam. If you're working full time, two, two months prior because I know you're not gonna be able to put three to two, two to three hours a night every night into getting ready for this, especially if you've got kids and family. So then stretch it out over, Two to three months. Not only with the Kaplan, what? How much is the online course? Um, About 800 bucks. That's the on demand course. The live one is about 550 because you don't get the access to the QBank. The live course is going to get access to the videos, uh, but not to the QBank. So it's going to take some time to get ready. and it's, a, it's an important thing. I mean, if you fail, um, it can affect your license, it can affect your job, all those sorts of things. If you're getting ready to certify, and I know some of you are getting ready for the first time, um, two months is not a short period of time either. Well, I just finished PA school. I'm not saying that PA school wasn't helpful. The, these courses, at least the way I developed mine, was meant to hit the things you need for the exam. It's not meant for, I mean, my book gets used by PA programs all over the country and it drives me nuts. It's not a textbook. My book is meant for people who've already gone through PA school to get ready for the exam. But even my own students, they're reading it before I give them tests and quizzes and I'm going, you guys, you're crazy. Don't use that. It's not what it was meant for. But they live by it and some of them are dying by it. So get a book, doesn't have to be mine, get somebody's review book. The other nice thing about the course that I do, we not only cross-reference my book on the slides, but we cross-reference the AAPA's book. I really like that book that's uh, put out by uh, Zarbach that the AAPA recommends. It's the one that's the only one recommended by AAPA and PAEA. Well, of course they're gonna recommend it, they're the ones who publish it. Okay, that would be like Elsevier recognizing somebody else's book instead of mine. Okay, you you recognize and and promote who you publish and who you get royalties from. I mean, duh. But it's a really good book. So all of my slides in my course are cross-referenced to the page number for both my book and their book. So if you've got their book, use my course, it'll still cross-reference. If you don't have their book, you got mine, it'll still cross-reference. So we did that uh, because I really like those two versions of the books. Um, So it's gonna take time to get ready. This isn't something you can, Oh, I'm, you know, going to drive. I'm taking the test somewhere else. I'm going to drive there the night before. I'll study the night before. It won't work. Okay. Any questions, comments, concerns, problems, issues? Yes. Uh, yes, you do. If you take the live course, it's twenty-five hours of CME. If you take the recorded course, it's twenty hours. It's nineteen or twenty hours of CME. Been approved by AAPA? Yes? Um, the 10 year cycle? What they're going to do is they're changing it so that you're not testing but every 10 years, but they're adding some quality assurance issues to it. You're going to have to do these QI type of projects. Um, I raised the question when they brought this up I said, I'm not in clinical practice anymore, but I need to maintain my certification because I'm in education. Um, I can't do one of those projects they said well we'll set something up for those types of people a fake one." Oh, come on how stupid is that okay if I don't need to do something for clinical practice or for my job why would I want to do something just for the sake of certification that would be like saying everybody here has to be certified in lumbar punctures I don't do it I don't care everybody needs to be certified in it that's silly Okay. I'd have rather given you the option to say 10 years and do this or six years and don't do this, but that wasn't going to happen. And then the specialty certification, that's a whole different ball of wax. Having to accumulate more CME, which if they ever do the DERM one will be a piece of cake for you guys because of your courses like this, um, and then having to take their exam. I don't know what they're going to do for those. I haven't seen any of those exams. Any other questions? Those of you getting ready to recertify soon, good luck, and um, thanks for coming.